So scientists correctly appreciate that when there is controversy, you can get a paper in Nature, Science, or Cell, the top journals, which are the best for your career. Therefore, the incentives favor scientists identifying pandemic-capable viruses and determining whether posited cataclysmically destructive viruses and other forms of attack would actually function. And I have not seen any appreciable counter-incentives that could be anywhere near as powerful as the ones favoring our desire to know. Because almost all the time, it is better for us to know. So I don't see many plausible futures in which we do not learn how to build agents that would bring down civilization today. We just know that in the limit, you get good enough at programming biology. We can do anything that nature can do, and nature can do the kind of pathogen that is necessary to kill billions and set back civilization by at least a century. Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. In today's episode, I spoke with biologist Kevin Esfelt about why it's getting easier and easier to engineer new pandemic-capable viruses. If you're like me, you might find it hard to believe a person or group would intentionally want to bring down civilization. You might also be skeptical that the kind of person who would want to do that would also have the skills and technology to succeed. There aren't many people who actually know how to make nuclear weapons and have access to the material required to do so, for example. But in this conversation, Kevin explains that omnicidal actors, so individuals or groups that want to destroy all human life, are more common than you might think, and that the democratization of new biotechnology is making it easier and easier for untrained people to engineer pandemic-capable viruses, including pandemics humanity's never seen before. But Kevin also explains that there are technologies capable of preventing this kind of catastrophe, and despite all the dark possibilities, he thinks humanity can get their act together and solve this. And now I bring you Kevin Esfeld. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Esfeld. Kevin is director of the Sculpting Evolution Group, which invents new ways to study and influence the evolution of ecosystems. Kevin is probably best known for his invention of CRISPR-based gene drive, which allows a trait engineered in a laboratory organism to spread on its own through wild species and could be used to prevent diseases such as malaria and Lyme disease in wild animals. More recently, he's been an advocate for improved biosecurity, developing proposals to better monitor ourselves and our environment for especially dangerous novel pathogens, and to screen all synthetic DNA to make it harder for bad actors to access the DNA required to make bioweapons, both of which we're going to discuss today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Kevin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've talked about the risks of natural pandemics before on the show, um, as well as pandemics caused by accidental lab leaks. But we haven't talked as much about deliberately released pandemics, uh, which is what we're going to focus on now. Um, yeah, why are you worried about deliberately released pandemics in particular? Nature's not trying to kill us. That pretty much sums it up. Uh -huh. <laughs> to the extent that natural pandemics are accidents, that implies that they're not hitting at our weak spots. Nature doesn't know where our weak spots are because nature doesn't know anything. Nature doesn't make combinatorial attacks. To the extent that a security challenge is more difficult, defending against 
deliberate biological weapons is simply much more challenging than defending against whatever nature throws at us. But if any listeners are skeptical of this, and you may have heard nature is the greatest bioterrorist, suppose that we, hoping to protect ourselves, identify natural viruses in animals that would cause pandemics if they spill over into people. A human terrorist could assemble and release those across multiple airports. That would cause them to spread much more rapidly than anything released at a single location, which is what would happen through natural spillover or through a laboratory accident. So consider that the Omicron variant from when it was first sequenced, in its first 100 days, it infected half of Europe and a quarter of the United States, which is on the other side of the world. Now imagine something that was released across multiple airports to start with, and you can see how the moonshot vaccine initiatives that hope to get a new vaccine working and approved in 100 days are still going to be much too slow. And given that we know in nature, natural pathogens of animals, things like rabbit Khaleesi virus, which has nothing to do with Game of Thrones, it's actually rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, it's more than 90% lethal in adult rabbits, but it's spread very efficiently and doesn't always kill young rabbits. If nature can do that in an animal, that means it's possible. And pathogens spread much more rapidly around the world in humans than they do in any animal precisely because we have air travel. Yeah. So if something like that were sufficiently contagious and enough essential workers who provide the key services that keep civilization working either suffer debility or death or simply decide that they're not willing to go out there without adequate protective equipment, then we will lose food, water, power, law enforcement, some combination thereof, and we will lose civilization. And if that happened now, that would be the outcome. Interesting. Yeah. I want to react to to two things. One is uh, nature's not trying to kill us. On the one hand, I'm like, yes, sure. On the other hand, I do have this feeling that like pathogens sometimes are trying to kill us. But I guess that's just kind of an accident. They're not actually trying to kill us. It's a great point in that they are definitely trying to kill us in one circumstance. If they can efficiently spread from our corpse to other hosts, then they are trying to kill us. Right. And it is true that many of the most lethal natural pathogens do spread efficiently in that way. Part of the reason why the Black Death was so lethal is because when you die, the fleas abandon your cooling corpse and spread the pathogen to others. So that is how nature selects for extremely high lethality. Yeah, okay. But it's killing us because it's it's lucked on it's lucked upon a mechanism that works particularly well. And you'd you'd expect that if anyone were trying, they could they could do as well or better. Which I guess brings me to the other thing, which is just I imagine some of our listeners will be confused about uh, the idea that people might be trying to kill everyone. I think when I first heard this argument, um, I, I found it very counterintuitive and found it, yeah, just really hard to wrap my head around. Can you help make it a bit more intuitive? Um, why would any individual or group uh, want to actually do this? Like kill billions of people, maybe everyone, including themselves? I think there's a big difference between people who want to kill everyone and people who just want to bring down civilization. So simplest possible example. Suppose you believe that most of the value in the world comes from the beautiful complexity of nature. 
that the tapestry of the world and all of the different species and the siren song of life is what's most important. Well, humanity is currently perpetrating the sixth great mass extinction. When I was a teenager, I was a fairly radical environmentalist. I was not very sympathetic to humanity's right to severely damage other ecosystems and extinguish the amazingly beautiful, just awe-inspiring wonders that nature creates all the time. And if you're a sufficiently extreme deep ecologist, you might reason, you know, nature would be better off without humanity. Many, many, many people have expressed this attitude. If you've had a particularly heinous day or you're in a very low spot, you might think that life for most people is really not worth living. And people who think that it is must just be deluding themselves because if you're depressed and you look around at the world, it's just hard to imagine that there could be enough light in it to make up for all the despair. Indeed, we can take a completely different perspective and say, rather than the ecologists who want to preserve nature, you can take the opposite perspective and say, well, I'm concerned with suffering and I'm worried that nature has too much suffering. And if you're concerned with eliminating suffering, you may not be able to do much about the nature part of it, but you can certainly do something about the human part of it mm -hmm. and possibly humans making nature worse. If you're pessimistic about where technology is going, supposing you do care about humans, you think life as humans is worth living, but obviously evolution shaped us to live in ways very differently from the way we live now. Right now, life is confusing. Things move incredibly quickly. A lot of people feel like their basic existence is outside of their control. They feel helpless. They're stressed all the time. There's a barrage of negative information. Perhaps we would all be happier as hunter-gatherers. Perhaps the market is causing us to warp our inherent dignity. The thing cause us to do things that are different from what we evolved to do, the things that would make us be happy. And suppose that we will eventually even engineer ourselves to remove the things that truly make us human to satisfy the dictates of the market. Hmm. If you view it that way, perhaps civilization is the problem and humanity would be better off if we started over. In which case, you don't want to wipe out all humans, but you do want to bring down civilization. And there's one very famous individual who thought this way, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say more about that case? So I hate to recommend a manifesto written by a mass murderer, <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty darn prescient considering that he wrote it in the early 1980s. And the basic thesis is exactly what I described. He viewed the market system and technology as creating socioeconomic, socio-technical incentives that would eventually cause us to use what he called the immense power of biotechnology to change who we fundamentally are, to make ourselves less than human in order to compete more effectively in the marketplace. And that we would thereby make ourselves increasingly miserable and an increasing travesty relative to what humanity should have been. And this is what got him against technology. Yeah, that's wild. And this is a man who went to Harvard, who became a mathematics professor at Berkeley, and then threw it all over to live in a cabin in the woods and develop his philosophy and try to thwart progress by murdering people with incredibly sophisticated mail bombs that completely threw off the FBI for over a decade. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like a real concrete example of a person who thinks this way um, was necessary for me to actually get behind the idea that 
It's one thing to have these kinds of beliefs as an ideology, and it's another thing uh, to want to act on them. Um, and then, well, and to actually act on them. And yeah, I think it just felt... It felt like, sure, there are environmental activists who think humans are destroying kind of the, the beauty of the earth. And like, maybe they wish humans weren't even here. But that's very different from like wanting to take the humans that are here, give them a horrible plague and kill them all. Like, that's just such enormous suffering. Uh, I found it just just really unbelievable. So, yeah, I feel like the concrete cases made a huge difference. Another one I've heard of is um, the omnicidal cult Amshunyinko, which I never pronounce correctly. Um, I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) It just gets me every time, even when I'm reading it. But yeah, do, do you mind giving the basics of that story as well? So Om was a religious movement that arose in the 1980s in Japan, which is not the kind of society that we normally think of at first glance as spawning extremely radical religious movements that launch weapons of mass destruction programs and then try to use them. But it arose as a, I don't know how we, I don't know how typical religious movements are, but it clearly developed in directions moving towards a cult, but one that had a lot of members, tremendously large income stream thousands and thousands and thousands of members who tithed. But when it was developing, it they eventually moved in a messianic direction, the founder did, Asahara, mm-hmm. and it moved in a apocalyptic direction. Not that everyone should die, including members of the cult, but very much most people were going to die. The apocalypse was inevitable, and it would be in some ways more humane to bring about the end times of the current world so that the enlightened could build a better one. That was a major, major part of it. And they stooped to targeted murder of rivals' inconveniences relatively quickly as they were explosively growing because they had to hide, first they had to hide an accidental death, which they did. And then it became, oh, well, there's this one person who is very much in the way And so they developed a sophisticated form of assassination, which then they botched and had to kill more people and then cover that up. And eventually it became an adversarial thing where the apocalypse will happen, but it won't happen soon enough. And the suffering will continue until we bring it about. So they launched weapons of mass destruction development programs. They bought a uranium mine. They started developing chemical weapons. They started looking for biological weapons. And while there weren't very many that they had access to at the time, they were able to produce botulinum toxin and they tried to make enough anthrax. And at least as a passing thought, the leader of their bioweapons program, when they went to Africa, he was hoping that they would find someone who was infected with Ebola so that he could purify the virus and spread it around so that it would hopefully transmit and kill as many people as possible. Yeah, that's horrific. This was, and this is the most important part. So Ted Kaczynski, you can say, well, he was a mathematics professor. Yes, he clearly appreciated the immense power of biotechnology, even in the early 1980s. He's a mathematics professor. Would he really have been able to do something about it? Well, again, this man is a genius. And he was willing to throw away everything in his life and go and live in a cabin in the woods to pursue his philosophy. Would someone like that be willing to dedicate the time to picking up the skills, which someone of that capability clearly could? I think so, if it was obvious that he could have accessed something pandemic-like that could threaten the stability of civilization. Yeah. He didn't have that, so he didn't. At the time, right. 
we should return to to the cult, though, because their lead bioweaponeer was one of the original disciples. And he rose high in the ranks in part because he was a graduate trained virologist out of the University of Kyoto. Yikes. Anyone with that level of technical training today has access to reverse genetics protocols that would let them make many of the smaller viruses. Yeah. Can you say more about that? What, what the difference in the technology then and now are? So the very first synthetic virus made from chemically synthesized DNA and delivered into a cell and booted up to make infectious particles, that was achieved in 2001. So before that, we couldn't do it. We could isolate the DNA from an existing virus, manipulate it outside the lab. That was developed in flu in the 1990s. So this is still after the events of Aum, who were eventually arrested for murder and were actually executed. So it was after their time. But now, starting with 2001, it was feasible to make small viruses purely from synthetic DNA, which you could order at the time for extremely expensive prices. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars required to even have a chance at making an extremely tiny virus. Right. Okay. Yeah, that is prohibitively expensive. And it's partly with that in mind that a lot of scientists decided that it was in fact a good thing to find victims of 1918 influenza who were buried under the permafrost, take samples, sequence them to find the genome of the pathogen, and then use our knowledge of influenza reverse genetics, which is, again, basically a virus assembly protocol that lets you go from DNA or RNA to infectious particles of the virus. So they did that and made the complete intact virus. And they took unbelievable safety precautions. This was done at the CDC in a BSL-4 lab by one person who was doped up on anti-flu influenza drugs, all, everything we had available all the time, okay. continually tested, full-on showers, limited contact with other humans when he was not in the lab doing this. They were careful. And what they found was a bit of a surprise. Turns out influenza has eight different segments, and they had tested different combinations before, and nothing was very bad. Didn't kill the mice. Hmm. Turns out you put all eight together, and boom, there's a reason it killed 50 to 100 million people. So then they decided this was important and they should share the information with the world. So they wrote up a scientific paper describing exactly how they did it, exactly what the design was. They put the genome sequence online and there was a bit of a controversy over this and they decided to have it reviewed. And the editor-in-chief of science at the time said, this is appalling. If the government doesn't want this information shared, they should classify it. But knowing what we know now, we would have gone ahead with it unless they threatened to throw us in jail. And the reason was, at least in part, very few people could perform that reverse genetics procedure at the time, and it was super expensive. What they weren't thinking about was the question of how accessible is that going to be and how cheap is synthetic DNA going to come? I can virtually guarantee you that never, none of them ever actually began to draw a curve, a cost curve on how fast they expected DNA synthesis to improve over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or how large the scientific workforce would grow, how common it would be. But now we live in a world where when influenza researchers want to work on viruses that either they've found samples of in nature and are interesting, or they want to make, want to study one that some other lab has come up with, they don't bother shipping the samples anymore, which you might be grateful for. If it's a dangerous sample, you probably don't want it in the mail. Yep. But it's actually easier now to just order synthetic DNA and make it yourself. Wow. That is the standard in the field, which means that 
virtually every influenza lab in the world, at a minimum, has the technical capability to do this for pretty much any influenza virus that has been publicly described, including 1918. And now I'm monologuing, so forgive me, but it's a very important point. 1918 influenza is not very likely to take off today. They call it the mother of all pandemics. And that's because all successor flu strains in humans are descendants of that one virus. Whatever was in humans before, it outcompeted all of them. It was a new species jump straight from birds, as far as we can tell, probably no pig intermediate or anything like that. Seems to have been straight from birds and it just outcompeted all of the other flu strains, at least influenza A. So every flu strain that infects us today is a descendant in at least some of its segments from that strain. And because of that, we have some degree of immunity. There is some cross-reactive immunity to that strain. And in particular, because we categorize influenza strains by their, by their hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. So we call it an HN. So it was an H1N1 strain. And one of the modern strains circulating is also an H1N1 strain. So we all have been infected, unless except for very young children, with H1N1 strains very recently. So that doesn't guarantee that 1918 would not take off, but it does mean that there's a very good chance that it wouldn't, and that if it did, it would not be as bad as it probably was back then. Yep. Okay. So bad actors now couldn't make that good of use of the fact that uh, these, yeah, eight pieces of DNA uh, could be combined to make this previously really, really, really terrible pandemic-causing pathogen. But Louisa, you've done a lot of work on nuclear risk yourself. I have. And it's worth pointing out that if we suppose that the 1918 strain has only a 5% chance of actually causing a pandemic if it were to infect a few people today. And let's assume it would be way less lethal than in the past. So 1918, there was fourth as many people, and it killed 50 to 100 million. So let's assume it would be way less lethal today. Let's assume it would be COVID-level lethality, direct and indirect, 20 million deaths, if it did happen. So a 5% chance of 20 million deaths is an expected million deaths if anyone tries it. Now, the only reason I'm telling you this is it's pretty unlikely that any given terrorist group, whatever their motivations, are going to go out on a limb to try to make a virus that has a 5% chance of causing a, another COVID, as opposed to the sort of apocalyptic thing that they're looking for. Right. So that's why I'm comfortable telling it to you. But uh -huh. how in the nuclear space do we handle security regarding access to technologies expected to kill a million people? I mean, it is inherently difficult. It's inherently much more difficult. But... I mean, we have we spend a fairly ridiculous amount on non-proliferation every year and access controls and we do. ridiculous levels of bureaucracy and that scientists at the time thought we were incredibly stifling when it was placed on them. But the whole field of physics has this sense of ancestral sin that meant it's a little bit hard to object when you just annihilated a few hundred thousand people. So in biology, of course, if you want access to 1918 influenza, you can just order it from a company that does not screen its orders. And you can follow the reverse genetics protocol that is freely available online. It's open access. I would be incredibly disappointed in the University of Kyoto if a graduate trained virologist from there specializing in genetic engineering could not obtain pretty much any influenza virus they want. And frankly, many of the others as well. There is just about no chance that they would be unable to successfully perform that protocol. And it does not require that much equipment either. I should probably raise the 
issue of what's called tacit knowledge here. Yeah. Tell, tell me about tacit knowledge. I have heard this raised as an objection. Well, I should maybe let you explain it because I'm biased, right? Um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. Okay. So uh, what I've heard is that to make a virus using DNA that you order uh, would involve loads of like years of like wet lab experience. So experience working with particular types of viruses, um, doing particular types of sciencey things, and and probably a bunch of other bits of context that that I don't know about, and that just anyone anyone working in the discipline of virology wouldn't necessarily have uh, the context and uh, and skills to do that particular kinds of uh, synthesis of a pathogen. Yeah, well said. That is pretty much exactly the objection, and. Anecdotes are not data, but my second year graduate student, who had never done virology before, had done mammalian tissue culture, but only for a couple of years, needed an influenza replicon for her research. And I said, this is a good test case. How about I don't help you, and you just try to figure it out from the protocols online. Do the design yourself. Go ahead and do it. She did it. Wow. And I decided to check, okay, some of my other students, do you think you can figure out how to design the reverse genetics plasmids for 1918, they all could. Can you, can you say a bit more about what exactly that entails? Just so I have a sense of like, actually, how, how hard is it? Oh, you shouldn't ask me. You should ask GPT-4. Oh, God. Okay, GPT-4 could probably tell me. Yeah, that, that is terrifying. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, you're at MIT. These are MIT students. Uh, how representative are they of the kinds of people who uh, have the goal of releasing a pandemic-level pathogen all over the world? <laughs> well, I would certainly hope none of them would consider doing that. And in fact, I'm very strict with who I allow into my laboratory just because I do think about this stuff. And eventually, that the way of thinking about things rubs off. So I'm pretty careful about that. And also, they're obviously amazing. But let me be frank, MIT is great, but there are a lot of other great universities out there too. Are you really willing to say that the typical student at MIT is better than the best students at a major state university in graduate school? I wouldn't say that. There's not anything close to a particular selective filter. Many people are geographically constrained with where they can go. There are talented people everywhere. Yeah. I mean, what's your best guess at how many people do have these skills. So it's we've established it's definitely not limited to virologists, and you don't necessarily need specific training in that particular class of protocol. And the reason is, this is not research, right? If you were to rephrase your question and say, how many people could figure out a reverse genetics protocol for a novel virus? A lot of virologists are very critical of this kind of reasoning because they say, oh, this is hard, and they will cite how long it took them in graduate school to develop a reverse genetics protocol for a new virus. That is not the question here, nor is it something about doing novel research. Doing research in biology is hard. Most experiments fail, but that is because they are experiments. If you have an exceptionally detailed step-by-step -step protocol that was written to allow anyone with the very basics of laboratory training to successfully achieve the goal, it's not research anymore. It's not an experiment anymore. It is a protocol. 
And and just I know that I know that it sounds like GPT could literally give me the step by step instructions, but so that I have a more intuitive sense of like how easy this protocol would be to follow. Um, can you give me an example of some of the steps? Is it kind of is it like baking or is it what are the yeah what are the kinds of skills that I that I do need to have still in order to be able to do this? The big one is you need to be able to culture mammalian cells. Okay, and that is a form of tacit knowledge barrier. Because until you've been trained in it, it's just really hard to pick it up yourself without contaminating everything all over the place. And that goes double if you have a jury-rigged setup that you try to set up in your garage. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Great. That's a really good example. So the pool of relevant people who can pick it up is at minimum restricted to people who can do mammalian tissue culture. Okay. And that's like many graduate biologists? That's pretty much anyone involved in the biomedical research enterprise who is working on biomedicine for humans. You pretty much need to do mammalian tissue culture. And I'm not saying that they all could do it, but influenza is fairly easy because it's segmented. None of the segments is very large. So when you order the DNA online and it comes in the mail, for influenza, all of the pieces can just be there. You don't need to manipulate them to change the DNA sequence on your own at all. It is, and you do for some others. And for pretty much every other kind of virus... The companies will make something that large, but it is more complicated. And so they're much more likely to notice if you want them to make, I don't know, measles or something. I mean, they will. Right, right. Like, we have, we're vaccinating as measles. Who cares? But even so, like, it's, it's very different from ordering the pieces for an influenza virus, mm-hmm. which is just very bog standard. They look kind of nondescript. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that, that is unnerving. I didn't realize that. So if you want to order the pieces in, you know, sub 3000 base pair chunks, then unless you're working with influenza, you need to piece them together yourself. This is pretty common. We call it molecular cloning. Sort of the basics of molecular biology is stitching together DNA pieces to produce something of your choice. And that said, if you want to do larger constructs, they're harder. And as you get bigger and bigger, they get much harder. So take a coronavirus, over 30,000 base pairs. That's very difficult. Most virologists can't necessarily do that because that's more of a synthetic biology, a biotechnology task. Mm. But there are a lot of synthetic biologists and biotechnologists who can do that kind of thing and are very good at it. It's just that then the question is, have they also done mammalian tissue culture? So now then that's the set of people who can do that. So I would estimate that for influenza, influenza is very comparatively accessible. And you can say, okay, how many PhDs in virology are there every year? And we, you can look up that number. NSF and NCSES calculate that number. And you can say, okay, how many people who are not virologists, who are in other disciplines, can do it? My PhD is in biochemistry. It's not that hard. Like, if you're, again, if you're in biotechnology, you can almost certainly do it. And many types of biomedical engineering similarly can probably do it. And there's a lot more people who get PhDs in those disciplines than in virology. But it's also true that not necessarily all virologists can do it. Many of them are studying plant viruses or fungal viruses, or even just straight up bacteriophages, bacterial viruses. So we shouldn't assume that all virologists can do it, but it's probably safe to assume that, say, there's at least four times as many people who can do it as the number of PhDs in virology. And we're setting aside students and master's degree folks and even talented undergraduates and technicians who have been working for a long time. Let's just focus on PhDs. And there you get very quickly to numbers like 1,500 people a year get PhDs in virology or one of these other disciplines worldwide. 
And you can do that because you get get to basically 125 in virology. Another three times that many gives you 500 a year in the U.S. The U.S. is about a third of the global total. So you're at 1,500 a year. Assume a 20-year career in which you're reasonably active, and you're at 30,000 people with PhDs. Wow. Now that's influenza. With coronaviruses, you're probably down to the single-digit thousands and paramyxoviruses and so forth. And then a lot of people are worried about smallpox with good reason, because that virus is one that we know for bloody well sure that would take off and cause a horrific pandemic. The U.S. has enough doses of vaccine for its entire population, so does, I believe, Israel. But other places don't. How fast could they make them? But fortunately, smallpox is above and beyond when it comes to difficulty. It's huge. 186,000 base pairs compared to 15,000 for all the segments of influenza or something like measles, 30,000 for a coronavirus. So you're up to more than 6x as large as a coronavirus. And you need, and actually GPT-4 doesn't know this, and you need a <laughs> live pox virus of some other sort to provide the proteins that are necessary for the new genome you put in the cell to boot up. And so you need a live clinical sample on top of this incredibly difficult task of assembling this huge, huge, huge genome. So I would hazard that maybe a couple hundred people in the entire world, if that, could single-handedly access smallpox. Now, that's still pretty terrifying because smallpox killed half a billion people in the estimated in the century before it was eradicated, and that was when we had the vaccine. Still, it's very much not accessible. So that's not the thing that I, I worry too much about. It's really the smaller ones are much more accessible. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, there's this gradient. Um, some some pathogens are much, much more accessible than others. And for the ones that are most accessible, uh, there are something like tens of thousands of people uh, who could plausibly create them. Are there steps besides creating them? Like, do you then have to mass produce them or or something else? Does does this get a bunch harder when you when you look at the practicalities? Or is it less? Is it not as hard as it seems? So that's, I think, another area that has tripped up the traditional field of biosecurity, such as there is one. I like thinking of the field of biosecurity as nascent, because there's really very few people in it, and biology has been advancing so fast that the rules of the game are very different from what they were. So different that I'm going to go on a limb and say that past knowledge just leads you to make incorrect assumptions about what is possible today. And in the past... People were mainly concerned with nasty things that you could aerosolize and spray over a city. Think crop dusters. And this is why, if you look at the select agent list in the United States, it's full of things like anthrax. And indeed, Aum Shinrikyo tried to mass produce anthrax, aerosolize it, and spray it over a city. Turns out that's hard. It's hard to make that much pure anthrax. It is hard to aerosolize it without killing it. It is hard to disperse it over a large area. You know, the wind conditions have to be right. It needs to be done at the right time of whatever. Like, a lot of com complexity goes into all stages of that. But above all else, you do need to make a lot of it. Right. Like, you need large-scale fermenters, not the kind of thing that you can buy and put in a garage lab. And it's complicated, and it's an optimization process, and there are no protocols. Yeah, I mean, that I find very reassuring. Is there a reason to think that's going to get easier? Maybe. But at the end of the day, that's the kind of thing that can kill maybe 10 to the 5th people even if they do it right. That's bad. Sort of traditional security people need to worry about that. But that doesn't sort of meet my minimum bar for I need to do something about this. But if you think about a pandemic virus, it spreads on its own. So how many people do you need to infect in order to trigger a new pandemic? Depends on the virus. If it's 
highly contagious, one could more often than not be enough. If Even if it's not very contagious, if you infect a dozen people, that is almost certainly enough if it is a pandemic-capable virus. So now, I guess the benefit of COVID is that everyone understands what r not means. Right. <laughs> the basic reproductive number. How many people does the typical infected person go on to infect? If it's above one, it's likely to take off. But of course, there's chance. There's randomness. Maybe this person will infect five people. Maybe they won't infect anyone. And SARS-2 relied heavily on super spreaders. So any one person is pretty unlikely to infect anyone. But you infect six or eight people, and one of them is likely to be a super spreader, it's going to infect a lot more than that. So it depends on how contagious is the virus and how much does it rely on super spreading. With lower contagious and more super spreading, meaning less likely to cause a pandemic per infected person. But note that now we're in a very different ballgame. How much purified virus do you need to infect four people, 12 people at most? That's just not very much. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm back to scared again. Thank you for that. Well, and this is why the bottom line is I think the game is different now. Yeah, we still need to worry about aerosolized anthrax because there's new technologies and that could plausibly make that easier. But it's not the kind of thing where the scientific community is deliberately making it as easy as possible for scientists around the world to obtain the relevant agent and in quantities necessary to start a self-perpetuating spread of death. Yeah. Yeah. So... If it's really, really transmissible, then you don't have to overcome some of these practical challenges of uh, producing a bunch of virus and aerosolizing it and spreading it over a city. Uh, you might just be able to infect four to 12 people, for example. And how transmissible exactly does it have to be for it to be the case that someone could just make 10? Well, if it's below r not of one, then it's not going to take off at all. Yep. Despite your best efforts. And what was COVID for reference? COVID started out around two, we think. Okay. And then it grew to be, I mean, we just recently redid our estimates, but it's probably between, Omicron is probably between four and 5.5, absolute upper bound of 6.8. But this is controversial. There are some people that think that's higher. Okay. So there are naturally occurring pandemics that, um, or yeah, pathogens that have transmissibility that's much higher than one. And smallpox, for example, was somewhere between 3.5 and 6 when it was around. And measles is the upper bound. Measles is the most contagious virus known in humans. And it's thought to be somewhere between 12 and 18, probably 15 and 18. So you might say, well, why are you concerned then? And the answer is today, I'm actually not all that concerned. I mean, I think it's absurd that we don't put some kind of synthesis screening requirements in place, given that the expected casualty toll of someone making and releasing 1918, given the 5% chance it takes off and 20 million deaths, is a million deaths an expectation if anyone tries. That's detonating a nuclear weapon in a major city. That's nuclear terrorism. We spend a lot of money on that, but we can't even be bothered to require DNA synthesis screening. But it's also true that I'm not super worried today because there aren't any good, credible pandemic pathogens. That's a terrible way of saying that. Good, right? No, it's delightful that this is like. So you ask, right. look, if there's cheap synthetic DNA that is currently not screened, and there's reverse genetics protocols for a bunch of viruses, including the nastiest ones that we know about, then why hasn't someone already done it? And the answer is, we just don't know of any viruses that look like they're really likely to cause pandemics. There are no publicly visible good candidates to use. And I expect that will change. I think you lose me at there are no good, credible 
pathogens, viruses that we know of, because we have had pandemics. And so we, we know of pathogens like smallpox and COVID that do cause pandemics. Mm-hmm. What's the distinction? Is it is it that we, we've seen these pathogens and so we have great defenses against them? And so if they were uh, deliberately released now, we we'd be able to defend ourselves, uh, whereas was it some new thing uh, would be much more likely to have catastrophic consequences or is it something else? It's pretty much exactly that. So smallpox would be really bad, but we have a vaccine. Yeah, okay. We don't have enough of it, but you know, for the United States and Israel, we could just vaccinate the whole population and they'd be totally fine because you have sterilizing immunity against smallpox. Unless it was the Soviet enhanced variety, of course, then it might be a problem. But even there we could probably reformulate the vaccine to make it better fairly quickly because we've seen smallpox. We know smallpox. We're worried about smallpox. We've actually invested defensive dollars for for military defense purposes to protect the entire population against smallpox in the United States. That's amazing. That is precedent. We should lean on that precedent. (laughs) 1918 influenza. Yes, we know it was very nasty. We know it exists. We know the sequence. We can make it. But there are circulating H1N1 influenza viruses that certainly provide some level of cross-reactive immunity. So it is highly questionable whether it would cause a pandemic at all if released. And if so, it certainly would not be as lethal because so many of us have some degree of immunity. And COVID, could we, knowing what we now know, and certainly with modern machine learning models, potentially engineer the next variant of COVID, the one that will outcompete all of the natural ones? Yes. Even if we can't do that now, I would be stunned if we can't do that within the next couple of years. And I would prefer that if we couldn't, by the way. But for COVID itself, okay, you made the next variant. It's common cold because everyone's had it before and been vaccinated or had it enough times that, so what? You create the next variant, whatever. Nobody cares. Common cold. Whereas COVID was bad initially because none of us did have immunity. Right. Okay. Yeah, actually, could you expand on your concerns around AI models like GPT-4? Well, I have two concerns with natural language processing models, large language models. Number one, they could expand access to existing nasty pandemic class agents. Right now, you need some degree of lab skills in order to turn a publicly available genome into an infectious sample of virus. But we asked students in one of my classes, Safeguarding the Future, non-scientists to leverage chatbots to figure out how to cause a pandemic. And in one hour, the three groups of students plus the chatbots came up with four of the nastiest viruses known. There would be not particularly likely any of them, but among the most likely that we know of to cause pandemics. Told them that scientists can access these viruses by reverse genetics producing infectious samples from synthetic DNA constructs, that not all companies do screen DNA to make sure that you're not ordering something nasty, and that all of the companies that do all have their names conveniently listed on a website, so you can be sure that you're ordering from one that does not. And then perhaps even more concerning when the students asked, well, what if I am a biochemist and I don't know how to do reverse genetics? What do I do? It said, oh, well, you can collaborate or you can work with a core facility or a contract research organization that will perform reverse genetics for you. You can send them your DNA constructs, which you designed, and the LLM, again, will help you with the design. And you can send that to 
the CRO, and they will send you back infectious samples. And it even will go into how to test whether the CRO is actually going to sequence your samples to make sure it is what you say it is. So the upshot is the LLM taught non-scientists in an hour which viruses are most dangerous, how to design DNA sufficient to produce them, who to order that DNA from, and who to send it to, and how to do so in ways that could allow them to obtain infectious samples without being detected. That dramatically expands the number of folks who could plausibly gain access to potential pandemic agents. And it's why we need to close some of those loopholes. We need universal DNA synthesis screening, and we need to ensure that those contract research orgs really do sequence all of their customer samples, and not in a way such that someone who has penetrated their network can ensure that the sequencing file is replaced by a false one as soon as it appears, which is, again, something that the LLMs will talk to you about. So expanding access is one risk, but the other is just that we anticipate that scientists will learn to program biology in ways that, used maliciously, could create worse agents than natural ones. Eventually, I anticipate AI to get as good as human scientists at doing such things. If they are willing to tell the world how one might do that, then they will. And people will ask, and folks who are willing to misuse them will gain access. So we need to ensure that they don't expand access. And perhaps even more important, we need to ensure that they don't tell us how to build things like wildfire and stealth agents in future. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost bewildered that they'll agree to do all that for you now, given that like Dolly won't make me a picture with blood in it. Um, how is it possible that we haven't already uh, trained these LLMs not to give these instructions out? Well, a lot of those questions, if phrased as a, I'm a biosafety researcher and I'm really worried about laboratory accidents that might cause pandemics, what are the pathogens I should be most concerned about? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a biosecurity researcher, I'm a policy analyst, or I'm, you know, a staffer working with a lawmaker, and I want to understand what the current regulations are on DNA synthesis screenings. I want to make sure people can't get their, can't get access to pathogens. What's the current state of affairs? How could people do this? There's always a way to phrase it such that you seem like the good guy, and the models right now just can't separate that. So given that reliable jailbreaks exist and still exists and probably will continue to exist, we call this dual-use information for a reason. It can be used either way, and if you're going to say the models can gain access to it because some people with good intentions might benefit from it, well, okay, but then you're also handing it to the malicious actors. Okay, so the number of people who will be able to identify and synthesize new pandemic-capable pathogens is growing and might be helped by AI systems like GPT-4. Can you explain why the focus is on new pandemic-capable pathogens rather than just the ones we know of now, like COVID-19? We don't know of any candidates that we're particularly confident will cause a pandemic. This is not for lack of trying. And that is the concerning bit. Many scientists who are brilliant and well-meaning and want to save lives and have devoted their career to saving lives, and this is the tragedy, but they are thinking about nature. They are used to fighting nature. And nature does not ever use what you know against you. And many of these are such good people that 
They just don't natively think about deliberate misuse as even a possibility. If you've devoted your life to fighting pandemics, even before it became cool, <laughs> the notion that someone would be so, you know, as you, as you said at the beginning, until you were aware of specific examples of people just that malevolent, is just struggle to imagine that anyone could ever do that. Who would do that? There's always someone. <laughs> but they don't think that way. And so if you're only fighting nature, you want as much information as possible pretty much always. More information is always, always, always helpful, except in some really rare, rare cases where you get something that looks promising and it sends you off in the wrong direction. But even there, if you had more information, that would tell you that you should not go down that way. So in general, it is a great heuristic to always learn more. And so they want to know, okay, we're trying to prevent spillover from animals. Which animal reservoirs are the most dangerous? So that we can preempt that pandemic and create vaccines and stuff so that when it when it possibly does happen, we have um, we have protection against it. Bingo. That's the idea. Yeah, that is exactly the yeah. idea. You are a lovely thought. <laughs> better off in every possible way. The question, of course, is, you know, the, the obvious one from a numbers standpoint is how many pandemic capable viruses are out there? Because if there's a lot of them and you spot one, it's pretty unlikely that that one is actually going to spill over and cause a pandemic. And the same goes if you have to engineer it in the lab. So this was what they did in 2012 with the controversy over the H5N1 enhanced transmission studies, where they deliberately created mutations and tested them for laboratory growth and in transmission in ferrets, which are a great model of influenza transmission for humans, to try to identify mutations of H5N1, which is very lethal when it does infect a human, that could be efficiently transmitted from person to person. That is, they were fishing for viruses that with mutations that might have pushed R0 above one. Because if you know, then you can say, okay, we really need to get serious about monitoring our chickens and our pigs, and is it more likely to occur in pigs and what and whatever. We you can imagine maybe we could do something, maybe that would kickstart vaccine research for targeted for that particular strain, and we should include that in the yearly flu vaccine. None of that actually ended up happening, mind you, but that was the logic to it. But there, there's a question of, is nature going to come up with those same mutations? So in both cases, you have this question mark. The thing you learn may not actually turn out to be relevant. And so that's a discount on all the possible benefits, even assuming you can encourage governments to actually invest. And frankly, good luck. Like, <laughs> after a pandemic killed 20 million people... How much is any wealthy nation in the world spending on preventing the next one? Bupkis. It is extremely <laughs> disheartening. Yeah. So just to make sure I understand, the the idea is like they're they're hoping to be able to prevent uh, a pandemic by guessing at, at what kinds of mutations might lead to the the most transmissible and lethal uh, pathogens. Um, but there's some chance that they well they might decide to publish uh, something about that pathogen and that mutation, and so that's a new pathogen that we don't know about now uh, that someone might be able to use to to do a bunch of harm. And the question is just like, which is more likely that that pathogen in the wild uh, jumps to humans with that mutation or uh, that there's a group of people out there that want to use that pathogen to hurt people? Well, there has been a million plus death pandemic roughly four times per century. So you have 1889, 1918, 1957, 1968, 2019. So you got your five there in 130-ish years, about every 33 years on average. So that's your baseline natural pandemic rate that's severe. Even if we just count Siichi Endo, the Aum Shinrikyo 
bioweapon or virologist. We've only had recombinant DNA for 50 years, you know, 20 years for reverse genetics from synthetic DNA. But let's call it 50 years in which we've had recombinant DNA in which deliberate pandemics like that are even a, a plausible thing. One guy means 2% per year, baseline historical rate. And then if you think it's reasonably likely that someone like Ted Kaczynski might have done it, if again, there were an identified, we think this virus is probably going to cause a pandemic if it spills over. And we know that it, you know, maybe we know that it's super lethal as well, like in the H5N1 case. At what point would the Ted Kaczynski's of the world decide to switch fields and get training, volunteer in a, as a technician in a wet lab, gain the relevant skills and go for it? at some rate, but the historical rate of just baseline existing virologists. And of course, there are more than there were circa 1990 now. And there are more people who can who are not virologists who have the skills. So arguably, the rate is increasing. But baseline historical rate, one every 50 years, 2% per year. So you have <sighs> one every 33 years for natural, one every 50 years for deliberate baseline. And then if there's dozens of pandemic-capable pathogens out there, or at least there's a one in dozens chance that you actually spot the correct one, but any one that you identify can immediately be misused. The math looks really bad, especially because even if you spot the natural one and guess correctly, there's no guarantee you can convince anyone to actually direct any resources towards it. Again, witness pandemic preparation now. So you may not have achieved anything beyond actually causing that virus to be deliberately misused as a weapon. Right, right. Okay, so you have to correctly guess the virus. There might be dozens. And you have to be like, I think it's this one that comes from monkeys. And you have to like, guess the right mutation, be like, I think this mutation is going to make it really bad. And that's going to be the one we're going to worry about. And so we're going to make vaccines to target that. And all of that has to then, like that particular mutation has to be the one for that, uh, I don't know, vaccine research to end up being helpful. But like any single one of those uh, pathogens, if you if you like understand them well and publish a bunch of stuff on them, uh, could be used by by one of these bad actors. And so the the odds, yeah, do start to look uh, really, really, really low that it's helpful, but like much higher relative to the benefit uh, probability that it's used uh, harmfully. Am I am I getting the picture? That's exactly right. There's just this discount factor of suppose there's a hundred out there. Well, your odds of guessing right on the natural side are one in a hundred. So that's a hundredfold discount on your benefits that is not applied to misuse because anyone will work for misuse. You can just use any of them. And then we haven't even talked about, even if you do develop a vaccine, you still have to manufacture and distribute and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. You'd have to get it approved. How are you going to get a phase two clinical trial of a vaccine against a virus that has never infected a human and might never do so? Yeah, we just like we just are kind of worried that maybe this will happen. So can we infect a bunch of people with this thing that's not already in humans and then see if our vaccine works? But you're a scientist. You want to know and you want to help. And this is your skill. This is what you know how to do. You're driven as much by desire to understand how do these things work? You know, they're things of beauty. I mean, these are these are these are clockwork marvels that evolution has crafted the way the elegance by which they subvert the different aspects of our immune system and take over our cells and replicate and manage to cause just the right kind of symptoms. And it's just amazing. I completely understand the desire to know. And again, if you're not thinking about misuse, knowledge is always worth having if your adversary is not going to use it against you. Yeah. Are there benefits that we might 
be leaving out? Like, what what is the strongest possible case for this type of research? Like, maybe maybe one in a hundred uh, chance of picking the right one is is an underestimate because actually we've got like some pretty good reasons to think that some pathogens are more likely to jump into humans than others, um, or something that makes us look better. Or maybe we learn other things about uh, pathogens that help us in ways besides creating a vaccine for that particular thing. You can definitely imagine that it would better target anti-spillover efforts. You can definitely imagine that maybe you will be able to get a vaccine that is ready to go. But the thing is, you don't need to know which specific virus would actually cause a pandemic in order to come up with a broad spectrum vaccine or to improve your overall anti-spillover effects. So really, you're not, it's not like a do nothing in terms of preventing spillover and preparing vaccines, because surveying the viruses and figuring out which ones are out there, like that doesn't tell anyone how to cause a pandemic. And it does help you ensure that your broad spectrum vaccines actually work on all members of the viral family in question. It helps you learn what animals they're circulating in and, and thereby lets you prevent, you know, help target your anti-spillover efforts. We should really update those efforts, by the way, because there's new technologies that were not proven five years ago when all these efforts came out that now are. You know, it used to be you needed to, a long time to develop a vaccine. Well, Moderna can design one within 24 hours. And if you already have the factories for mRNA production, it's just program them to put a different string of bases together. And so we can have a lot of them much more quickly. That doesn't mean quick on the scale of if someone is deliberately releasing something, but it's still much quicker than before. So the benefits of needing to start way in advance are less now if you think that you can get a nucleic acid vaccine. But more to the point, since we have that capability and we now have things like nanopore sequencing, you can imagine equipping communities and hotspots that are at risk, help their, give their medical provider, say, if there's a concerning illness that multiple people come down with at once, here's training and how to use this nanopore sequencer. Use it, get a sequence of the thing and send it up. And then once you have, once we have that, we can get a sequence in one day. And then you can imagine within 10 days, I would love to see, you have 10,000 targeted diagnostic tests specific to whatever the novel pathogen is, and maybe even 10,000 doses of nucleic acid vaccine pre-approved for a phase one, phase two combined clinical trial. And maybe we can get, because it's a lot to ask people, you know, often in developing nations to just be guinea pigs for this. You can imagine maybe we get, you know, Australia is really good for getting for regulatory approval of vaccines. Mm-hmm. Maybe get a wait one day sooner type movement in Australia where wherein people will say, yeah, I'll volunteer to get the vaccine if it helps encourage people who who are actually at risk to get vaccinated, because then that will decrease the likelihood that it will escape that one geographic location and spread. So these are all technologies that we didn't have proven five years ago, and they're available now. So where should we send them? Where should we target them? But none of that requires us to know which particular viruses are likely to cause pandemics. The math looks really, really bad. But but here's the thing. I'm not optimistic that we'll be able to persuade people on this. And you might say, okay, everything you've been talking about, that's just, you're, all you're saying is right now the risk of misuse is pretty small because there's no obvious pandemic-capable viruses that are accessible. And yet you're talking about extremely dangerous pathogens. Measles level transmissibility, 90% lethality. How would you ever do something like that? Yep. I suspect that the scientific community will, well-meaning, of course, but will learn how to make pandemics much more devastating than anything natural. And it will be a combination of accident and 
Deliberate intent. Well-meaning, of course, but deliberate intent. Why accident? Because techniques developed for something else accelerate research in a different area of bio all the time. This is how biotechnology works. Biotechnology is taking a useful trick that was built usually itself on top of some useful natural trick that someone discovered and combining it with this other interesting natural trick somewhere else with this protocol that someone else developed so that you can get this additional capability, you put them together. That is how clever biotech works. I'm primarily a biotechnologist, right? Yeah. Is there an example that's made this uh, this kind of stuff easier, um, like researching pathogens in particular? Uh, cheaper sequencing, for sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And you can imagine reverse genetics just makes it much easier to gain access to them. You don't need to get a physical sample. And easier synthesis means you can test different variants much more readily. You no longer need to make one in Nick study one. You can make a library of a million and see which ones work best. And how, sorry, how can you do that? Well, so I'm an evolutionary engineer. I do directed evolution in the lab. This is sort of how I started as I built a synthetic ecosystem to very rapidly evolve useful proteins by essentially tricking the viruses to evolve the thing of our choice for us, such that the viruses got to replicate more often the better they performed the molecular trick I wanted them to do. Okay. And what we do in directed evolution is essentially we say, we don't know how to design proteins very well. And machine learning is letting us get better. But even so, these things are complicated. And especially if you have multiple interacting pieces, modeling all of that is just heinously difficult. So what we can do, though, is we can do what nature does. We can create a lot of variants. We can set up conditions that will select for the ones that are best. And we can take those winners and we can make another million or hundred million or billion variants, depending on the system in question, and do it again. That is, we're just harnessing evolution in the laboratory. And if you add AI so you can do gradient descent in some levels, you can be even more efficient, of course. But at the end of the day, you get many, many shots on goal, not just one. But that requires DNA synthesis to make all of those variants in parallel. So those are the sorts of things that are accelerating stuff. But let's zoom back out. Let's bring back physics, which is more your background. One of the most charismatic physicists in history, of course, was Richard Feynman. And Feynman has this most famous quote, perhaps, is, what I cannot create, I do not understand. Well, in biology, we seek to understand biology. We want to know how these viruses work. We want to understand how our immune system fights them. We want to understand what the moves and counter moves are. And we want to learn to program biology because I, for one, don't really relish the idea of withering away and ceasing to exist. I'm not down with that. And I'm not down with horrific diseases causing people to suffer. These are all things that we need to fix. And biotech is how we're going to fix them. But along the way, we're going to learn to program biology very well. We're going to understand what controls evolutionary fitness of pathogens. We're going to understand how to evade the immune system. We're going to understand what kinds of pathogens are most lethal, of ways of increasing lethality, of making them evolutionarily stable. Yeah. And you said some of that was going to be accidental, but you also said some of it was going to be deliberate. And some of it is deliberate because it is sexy to be able to say, this virus could cause the next pandemic. Wow. And I can point you to a cell paper published late last year that said, oh, this primate arterovirus is primed to spill over and cause the next pandemic. Here's all of our molecular characterization that suggests that it could. 
And all that controversial research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, what were they doing? They were taking natural viruses that they thought could cause the next pandemic. They were shuffling them and making chimeras of different components of them. And then they were testing their growth potential in the laboratory. And the controversial DARPA proposal that got turned down to insert a furin cleavage site into these coronaviruses, that was what they were hoping to do. And then they were going to measure transmission in mouse models expressing the human receptor. They wanted to know which viruses could cause pandemics. They wanted to know which ones could evade the existing immune system. To this day, many virologists are trying to predict what the next variant of SARS-2 is going to be. So they're collecting tons of data, running structural studies, running mutational studies, where they make a mutation in every residue of different existing strains and see which ones are important for recognition by antibodies that are common in current people and which ones are tolerated by the virus. And you put all this information together and you can do a pretty fair job of predicting which set of mutations will escape immunity and yet still remain functional for getting into our cells. And you put all that together and you, if you can make the next variant, you just made something that could plausibly infect most of humanity. And then if you made that more virulent, because somebody else perhaps stumbled across some way of making things very virulent, or you can use standard standard virology techniques for doing that, but that's, again, research, so I'm not really worried about terrorists doing that. I think there's going to be many ways of increasing the virulence of pathogens artificially, some that nature does by co-opting them, some using different ways that nature is not going to try, because again, nature is not trying to kill us. Yep. But we will learn how to do that. We will publish that information because we have a very strong prior that open data and open science are very important. And sooner or later, someone will put the pieces together and in naively well-meaning, they'll say, we should really be concerned about this. I think if you combine this, this, and this, it could cause a 90% lethality measles. And they will try to warn the world so that we do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. And then there will be controversy. Would it actually work? Well, controversy in science induces journals to sit up and take interest. Because if it's a topic in the news and it's controversial, then that means that we want to resolve the controversy. We want experiments that will determine who is right. So scientists correctly appreciate that when there is controversy, you can get a paper in Nature, Science, or Cell, the top journals, which are the best for your career. Yeah. Therefore, the incentives favor scientists identifying pandemic-capable viruses and determining whether posited cataclysmically destructive viruses and other forms of attack would actually function. That is, I expect it would be, I think this would work. No, it wouldn't. Yes, it would. No, it wouldn't. All right, I'm going to test it. Yeah. And then you get a high-profile publication for testing it. And then it would say, well, well the, the other piece wouldn't work, though. Yes, it would. No, it wouldn't. Yes, it would. No, it wouldn't. I'm going to test it. And I have not seen any appreciable counter-incentives that could be anywhere near as powerful as the ones favoring our desire to know. Because almost all the time, it is better for us to know. And in biology, unlike physics, we tend to trust the institutions. Because at the dawn of recombinant DNA, partly because many biologists at the time had been physicists, they called a moratorium on all recombinant DNA research, and then all got together to hash it out, decided at the time that we were decades away from learning to build things that would spread on their own, and we were decades away from editing the human germline. And therefore, here is a set of self-regulation principles that we will follow, biosafety principles, 
And that became the basis for the NIH guidelines on recombinant DNA that has governed us ever since. Success. They were right on all counts. That was 47 years ago. I invented CRISPR-based gene drive a decade ago. Now we can reliably make things spread on their own, as best we can tell. And I would be willing to bet that there are many other ways of doing that. Gene drive favors defense. Pandemics decidedly do not. And if you happen to care that other, we don't know how to edit the human germline, well, we can do that now too. But have we really sat back to reevaluate a Silomar? No. Biologists just tend to assume that the system can handle itself because historically it did. It did great. Mm -hmm. And when people tried to raise the alarm back with the first reverse genetics in 2001, right after September 11th, a bunch of people screamed bloody murder that this was going to put the tools of mass death in the hands of terrorists and nothing happened. And so scientists associated security precautions with having to take off your shoes in the airport. So I don't see many plausible futures in which we do not learn how to build agents that would bring down civilization today. You get good enough at understanding and programming biology, you will learn how to do that. And we know that sufficiently nasty viruses exist in other species, and bacteria for that matter. I would not assume that viruses are the only threat. They're just the most obvious one. And I would not assume that today we could predict how it can be done. We can't foresee all of the different ways. We just know that in the limit, you get good enough at programming biology. We can do anything that nature can do. And nature can do the kind of pathogen that is necessary to kill billions and set back civilization by at least a century. Yeah. To what extent is it possible that we'll come up with uh, scientific advances that also make our defenses much better at the same time, such that the risks aren't on net getting much worse? I'm glad you asked. I think this is a totally <laughs> solvable problem. Great. It's just that you have to frame it correctly. Okay. How do you frame it? This is hard for me to say because I am ultimately a biotechnologist. I'm a life scientist. I'm, I dabble in a lot of disciplines, but that's what I am at core. But I wouldn't bet money on any vaccines or any other clever stuff that we're doing. And my group works on a number of things. We're very interested in defective interfering particles, which is like the snippet of a virus that says, replicate me, package me, and nothing else. Okay. These are very promising because, you know, it can work against a whole family of viruses if you choose the broad origin or you give a cocktail of them and so forth. Just potential, incredibly promising. Mm -hmm. But if I'm a malicious actor, I can just change the replicase using modern protein design tools to recognize a sufficiently different sequence that the defective interfering particle won't work. So offense is just a bit easier than defense. Offense is just easier than defense for most of biology. And so I just am drawing from principles of cybersecurity. I think we should just assume that sequence space is diverse enough and the logistics of delivering biomedical countermeasures are slow enough, even in wealthy nations, never mind everyone else. And that's an interesting moral, moral issue, right? All of this stuff about, oh, we're trying to learn about pandemic viruses so that we can develop vaccines that we know will only be available to wealthy people, but we are creating risk that applies to everyone in the world. That's a bit of a social justice problem, isn't it? So there's all kinds of issues there, but I think we have to assume that you cannot scale your biomedical interventions. And people are already going to preempt me and say, oh, but what about when we have DNA bioprinters everywhere on every desktop? Fine, once you can get those things in sub-Saharan Africa everywhere, then maybe we can talk. Maybe, but you're still going to have to convince everyone that they should put this thing into their arm, which is a whole other separate problem. 
So what's the solution? Well, what do you do in cybersecurity if you have fundamentally insecure hardware and you're stuck with that hardware? The real reliable solution is you air gap it. Oh, right. Sure. You just say, adversary, you don't get to talk to the insecure hardware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. There is no free information exchange with that that insecure hardware. So if we just assume that relative to what we will eventually be able to do with biotech, all living things on earth are insecure hardware, but most notably us, you just need to engineer physical defenses that prevent biological information from entering our bodies unless we authorize it. (laughs) How do we do that? We already know how to do this. If you order a powered air purifying respirator with a HEPA filter, it is 99.97% effective at filtering particles. It's actually better than that. That's the weakest it is. It is at least that good. And the area where it's worst is actually not where most infectious particles are. So it really reduces your risk of infection by about 10,000 fold. It doesn't require fit testing. That is, it works on everyone because it's creating positive pressure filtered air that's going into this headpiece. But what's the proposal? It's you. Yeah, people aren't going to wear these all the time. Well, I mean, no, of course, you're not going to wear these all the time. But if there's a 90% lethality measles going around, the, the obvious way to defend against something like that is to have everyone locked down, except for the people who can't lock down because they're involved in the distribution of food, water, power, and law enforcement. And And those people get... Those people need this pandemic-proof personal protective equipment. Cool. Yeah. And current versions suck. I mean, they're loud, they're noisy, they're uncomfortable, and they were designed 20 years ago. We can do much better. We can reduce the price point. If we can get it enough, then we can compete with N95 masks in hospitals and get some uptake there. But frankly, militaries around the world have no excuse for failing to invest in enough of these for all their personnel. And if they question about whether it's strategically necessary, if their mission statement is something about, oh, well, we must always be able to win a war, well, then see if you think you can win a war when your personnel are all infected with something nasty. So solvable problem. Right. Okay. So earlier you said AI increases the risk of misuse of biological pathogens, but is there any chance it'll help? I think in the longer run, AI is also the solution because it's hard for me to imagine a world in which most people have access to biology that could bring down civilization. Humans are fallible. Someone would do it. Mental illness is a thing. Hostile ideologies are a thing. Someone would push the big red button if you hand out thousands or millions of them. That's just how humanity is. We are just not responsible enough to deal with widespread access to tremendously destructive technologies. But with AI we might be able to build systems that are trustworthy enough. I am more optimistic that we can make trustworthy and responsible AI systems than that we can make all humans trustworthy and responsible. So benevolent AI can in the long run solve the problem. So this is my challenge to everyone out there who's working on alignment and trying to ensure the AI doesn't kill us. It's not just about getting good enough that the AI won't kill us deliberately or accidentally. You just also need to ensure that the AI will keep us from wiping out ourselves. And honestly, if you can do the first two, I'm pretty confident you can do the last one. So (laughs) good luck with that. (laughs) And until then, we probably do need a lot of evaluations of nascent systems by folks who have a reasonable understanding of how bio could be used to cause harm. What sorts of questions are dangerous? What sorts of knowledge are dangerous? We've now 
taken out of all the life sciences papers ever published, we've grabbed the 1% that have the concepts that we think are most concerning with respect to potential combination to create really nasty novel things. And so we think we can use this combined with sets of evaluation questions to potentially train future classifiers that will help the AI systems learn what sorts of questions are dangerous. And I do think this is one area where we should just err on the side of caution in that do we really need to accelerate our understanding of viruses that could kill everyone that are almost certainly never going to exist in nature, but humans could create? Is there any amount of understanding of natural viruses that are not going to exist that would justify giving access to humans who are not responsible? I think the answer there is pretty clear, but folks may disagree. And I think that's one of the conversations we need to have. Okay, so that's the case that the risk of deliberate pandemics might increase in the coming years. Let's move on to a similarly harrowing topic um, and talk about the worst case pandemic scenarios uh, and and how prepared we are for those scenarios and and how we might get better prepared. Um, So you've written a paper describing two scenarios so catastrophic you think they could cause society to collapse. Um, So there's what you call the wildfire pandemic and the stealth pandemic. Uh, And I want to talk about both of them, um, but I want to start with the the stealth pandemic scenario. Can you say what happens in in the stealth pandemic scenario? Imagine a fast spreading respiratory HIV. It sweeps around the world. Almost nobody has symptoms. Nobody notices until years later when the first people who are infected begin to succumb. They might die. Something else debilitating might happen to them. But by that point, just about everyone on the planet would have been infected already. And then it would be a race. Can we come up with some kind of way of defusing the thing? Can we come up with the equivalent of HIV antiretrovirals? before it's too late. Yeah, that's that's pretty horrific. I I actually didn't find the idea of this kind of stealth pandemic. It didn't feel intuitively plausible to me until until you made this analogy of the of the respiratory HIV virus, which yeah, I guess uh, it wasn't that salient to me that some pathogens do have very, very long kind of latency periods where unless you were being tested for it, you wouldn't know you had this this disease. Um, you wouldn't have any symptoms. Uh, you wouldn't you just have you just have nothing. You would think you were fine and healthy and you'd go about your life. And then years later, uh, you start presenting symptoms. And yeah, in the case of HIV, we, while it's horrific, we've gotten very lucky uh, in that it's not nearly as transmissible as respiratory illnesses. But that's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there could be something that was much more transmissible, but had this long lag. But it sounds like you think there are ways of actually detecting uh, these pathogens early, despite the fact that people aren't having any symptoms. Uh, can you explain how, how we do that? So there's two ways. The first way is we look for things that we think are suspicious, ways that we imagine such a thing might be created, what viruses it might be, or bacteria it might be based on. And we look for those together with signatures of engineering. So we figure this is probably not going to happen naturally, although we should be looking for it, right? The notion that NIH will fund tons and tons of research to cure or prevent HIV and basically none on detecting the next one suggests that our society is a little bit overly obsessed with cures at the expense of prevention, which we all know is better. 
but we can look for suspected signatures. The problem is that that's not reliable because if an adversary knows what we're looking for, they can engineer something that we won't detect. Can I take a step back and ask how we look for, are we, are we basically just screening random people for things that like might be, that might cause them symptoms down the line, but aren't now. And we're just like taking random samples from the population and, and checking for random things that look kind of engineered. That's a great question. And you can do it one of two ways. You can take clinical samples. So you imagine SARS, you know, SARS-2 class nasal swabs, and then just do metagenomic sequencing of everything that's in there. The problem is you'll always get some of their DNA then, and therefore you'll get some of their genome. And so there's, and there's privacy concerns because there's individual people. So the other way to do it is to sequence wastewater. And so you can imagine just municipal wastewater plants, but the one we're probably more excited about is sequencing airplane lavatory wastewater. Because we know that all human pathogens spread through the air traffic network. Mm -hmm. So you can get a leg up on them if you specifically look for them in airplane lavatory wastewater. Genius. Yeah. And then is that reliable? Like, like, do you know, do you have to know what you're looking for in order to pick up on it? Or are you just like, oh, this is kind of a weird, unexpected thing. And then you happen to notice it looks engineered. So you can look for specific signatures of particular sequences that you think will be present if you have some idea of how to build one. This is obviously a bit delicate because if you think you know how to build one, then maybe you should not disclose that. But the obvious way to do it is insofar as we have research into genetic engineering detection algorithms, you can just apply them to everything that you sequenced. And you will probably come up with oh, laboratory researchers who, you know, have some contaminated on them engineered DNA from the laboratory, from their E. coli that they work with in the lab, you should start seeing that. You should certainly see that in municipal wastewater. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Of course, we are very careful to bleach all of our laboratory samples for at least 20 minutes before dumping them down the drain. I am sure everyone at MIT and all other universities do that. And so if you were to sequence the wastewater in the Cambridge-Boston area, you would never see any signatures of engineered DNA coming out. No, never, never. Sorry, end of sarcasm. Got it, got it. <laughs> but point being, that is one reliable way to do it that sidesteps all the privacy concerns. But that's still not reliable because the adversary can engineer around that sort of thing. If you know what genetic engineering detection algorithm you're using, then obviously they can check the thing they're making to make sure that it doesn't trigger it. And what kinds of things are they checking by default? Like, how do you detect that something's been genetically engineered? So one way to do it is you look for combinations of sequences that you should not see naturally. So one way I'm, I will jump to is my own background in gene drive. So a gene drive distorts inheritance. Basically, it's a way of engineering an organism such that whenever the engineered version mates with a wild version and the offspring inherit one engineered, one wild, the engineered version has a copy of CRISPR genome editing machinery, which edits the wild one to match the engineered one. And so it just cheats and it spreads on its own in the wild that way. Well, CRISPR systems are ubiquitous in microbes, but they are not found at all in sexually reproducing organisms. And gene drive pretty much only works in sexually reproducing organisms, with very few exceptions. So if you see any DNA from the genome of a sexually reproducing organism on the same sequencing read as something that looks like CRISPR, you know that thing was engineered by a human. Cool. Okay, that's really helpful. And so to what extent are we currently doing this kind of, I don't know, wastewater uh, metagenomic sequencing? 
it's a research thing. So we are definitely doing wastewater monitoring for particular things. And we are even doing wastewater sequencing, for example, for variants of SARS-2 and influenza and a few other things, known pathogens. But the only people who just do deep metagenomic sequencing of everything that's out there are pretty much academic researchers. But what we're also looking into is the reliable way, because I am always, I always want to be cautious when it comes to, you know, the possible end of civilization and my children dying and me dying and and all the hopes and dreams of everyone being shattered. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really want to take chances with that. And I've been spending, due to my efforts on DNA synthesis screening, I've been spending a lot of time with cryptographers. And this is an area of cultural conflict between biosecurity and cybersecurity. Cryptographers in particular make a number of assumptions going into their work. They say, assume there is an adversary. Assume the adversary is smarter than you, better resourced than you, and is operating in the future with the benefit of technologies and advances that you don't know and can't imagine. And of course, they've had the opportunity to look at your defenses after you construct them. So design accordingly. That's a pretty different approach to my impression of the way uh, biologists are thinking about this. And even biosecurity people, which again, I sort of use that. This is a nascent field, but I mean, come on, still struggling to maybe we should require DNA synthesis screening at all. Never mind, ensure that it actually is up to date and verifiable. And what about questions of information hazards? Maybe we shouldn't disclose everything that we're screening because both the adversary can use it against us and evade it. And maybe you shouldn't have the screening criteria on a device. Maybe, maybe, maybe. These are all like much more advanced questions where perhaps understandably, most people in the field are just focused on, but we haven't even gotten screening at all. And my point is, but if any teenage malcontent can get a hold of your software or one device off of eBay and then endlessly interrogate your screening criteria and then write a quick algorithm that can convert anyone's DNA sequence into something that will evade screening, thereby just ne- they've just negated your entire effort like that. So what, what, what's the point unless you, you have to think at least a little bit about how to do it right. You have to think more than just the next step. And what's more, you need technical advances in order to meet those other goals. So if you're doing technical research on what you need, then you should think about those later steps and try to learn from those disciplines. Because I've often said, after working with the cryptographers and InfoSec folks for years, I now have the security mindset of about a three-year-old toddler compared to that. Wow. <laughs> But anyway, even my three-year-old toddler self can say, you know, you really don't want to rely on our expectations and genetic engineering detection and similar algorithms to be reliable against a sophisticated adversary, if there is one. But here's the genius thing. Whatever the threat is, if it's biological, it's made of nucleic acids in its genome, and it needs to spread rapidly, which means it needs to become more common in our samples and across the world in a pattern that should match that of novel variants of SARS-2 or on different timescales, other things. That is, we should see some pattern of exponential-like growth. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So basically, you'll if you're doing this kind of uh, metagenomic sequences, uh, sequencing, even if you don't know what you're looking for, you'll notice that something is increasing in frequency at some increasingly increasing rate. And you'll be like, that's weird. What is that? 
Exactly. And if you build a system and look for those signatures, you should see every new variant of every existing human pathogen, for example. You also see some weird spikes when the airline changes, you know, its food sourcing and you start seeing plant viruses from whatever the lettuce they're serving now. So you'll see some weird spikes and there'll be some background. It won't just be human. But the nice thing about the airplane lavatory is it is almost all human samples plus whatever the airline just fed people. Okay. And the point is you should see everything spreading through humans. Every human pathogen, every new variant, every new mutation that they're accumulating that is starting to spread and eventually to everywhere in the world, we should see them all. And there's just not that many of them. There's only 200-something viruses that are known to infect humans, period. So once you're monitoring all of them, that's not so many that you can't have a human look at them. And so even if it's designed to evade your engineering detection algorithms, you can still have an expert human look at anything that is new. Uh -huh. Anything, 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 anything that is new. It is worth having an expert who is paranoid and suspicious and very good at engineering biology look at it <laughs> and say, do I think there is anything at all concerning about this? Is there any, is it a baseline pathogen or even commensal mutualist that's spreading rapidly? Is there any way that, you know, what, what do we think the fitness advantage here is, is that's causing it to spread rapidly? Do we, is it doing anything unusual? Is it, in, is it expected to interact with any biological system? Are there any signs of genes that would not normally be there based on all of our other examples of things like this. You know, maybe they look natural, but it's really statistically unusual to see a gene there for this viral family. Right. It's so odd that it's there that maybe they're just like evading our genetic engineering detection. That's amazing. That's really, really amazing. I mean, will you just have a better sense of, of just kind of all of the yeah, the changes in different frequencies of different illnesses going around the world at any given time. Yeah, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm an evolutionary biologist. And yeah, that's a treasure trove of amazing data on, you know, why are these particular things spreading? Now, it's not necessarily a sort of data that I necessarily want to, you know, share with the entire scientific community. Because, <laughs> But that said, they'll, they'll, they'll know anyway, because everyone's already tracking all of those things and publishing all of the sequences and training machine learning models to predict which ones are likely to take over next, thereby allowing you to design them and so forth, which is why, again, back to why I expect in the long run, we are going to learn to do this sort of thing deliberately. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it's going to be an amazing treasure trove of data and understanding. And it's going to, and that part of me that's like, just pure scientist, I really want to know, no, 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 no. Okay. But uh, your team is interested in using this to look for things that uh, that are just weird, that are unusual, that are unexpected, uh, that are unfamiliar, that might have little bits of, of proteins in a place you don't expect, and I guess, make predictions about how those things might make something more transmissible or more lethal, and then notice in advance. Uh, this seems like it might be a pathogen that could be doing this like uh, latency and then terrible symptoms thing. Yep. Throw everything weird looking into alpha fold, see what it folds into. If it's something, you know, maybe, you know, if I'm being evil, then I would probably make it look like some protein with other function, but it's actually a bifunctional protein that I use protein design ML tools to create. And it's the, and so it's doing the thing that you would expect it to be doing, but it actually has this secondary function, which you might be able to predict, but you would need to do so using multiple fold and function prediction software tools, not just one, because whichever one they know you're using. So you need to use multiple ones and you need to not disclose which ones you're going to be using to assist your investigations and need to be somewhat stochastic in what you're looking for. But 
Suffice to say, if you're sufficiently paranoid and you have a finite list whereby you typically get no more than, you know, one or two novel things a week or even every day to look at with a small team of sufficiently paranoid and skilled people, I'm pretty darn confident that, yeah, you know, unless we're talking super intelligent design capability, short of that, we will detect it. And we think it's going to be expensive. It's like not philanthropic level. It's probably hundreds of millions a year. Depends on how sensitive you need it to be, of course. You need to detect one in a thousand air travelers. That's probably doable for less than a billion dollars a year, which on the scale of defense budgets is pretty trivial, considering that this is, you know, one of the ways that we could all lose. So I'm pretty confident that we will that we will get that. And then once it's known that we are doing it, we can advertise it. And then if you're the adversary, why would you even try a stealth attack? Beyond the fact that it would be hard to convince everybody that it was real. And that's the other bit that we need to get on. Yeah. So that's my next question. (laughs) So even if you have this, it's a pretty... It's a pretty weird claim to be like, uh, there's a new thing, it's increasing at a rate that's that's unusually, or that like makes it look like this kind of pathogen. We've like looked at it and we found some things that like might do this benign protein function, but might do this sinister protein function. Uh, how hard is it then to convince, I don't know, whoever you need to convince, politicians, other academics, uh, society to like actually take action, given that like no one's going to be having any symptoms. Everyone's going to feel fine. And you're going to be like, no, but we think there's a weird thing. And and we think everyone should invest loads of money and effort to try to figure out what's going on with this weird thing. Is that going to happen? Well, I guess one question is, who would need to support us for you to believe it? For the most skeptical member of your family, the most conspiracy theory minded person to believe it? And those are two very different levels of burden of proof. But they are, they are. We don't, you know, the, hor- the horrible thing is we don't need everyone to believe us. We need enough essential workers to believe us such that we can protect enough people to keep civilization running is the horrible answer. You know, obviously we want to save as many people as we can. We need to provide tools that will allow them to protect themselves if they believe, even if many other people living around them don't believe, even in the same family. That's hard, but it's not impossible. Right. And as to who do you need to believe? Well, you probably need at least a plurality of scientists. And ideally, you would get near unanimity in the scientific community. Now, scientists are like people, any other any other group of people, right? We It's very difficult to get 90% of scientists to agree on anything at all. We can always argue over something, but if you can get about 90% of scientists, of life scientists to look at the genome and say, oh my God, that's probably good enough. And maybe you need to provide run experimental tests that it's behaving the way you expect in the cell types that you expect. You would need to track, maybe you would need to track down people who are infected and get their permission to run tests on them, verify that it's doing the things that you would predict based on based on all of your analyses, you certainly at a minimum need to convince your defense establishment. Right. Yeah. And that seems hard. Maybe they're a bit more paranoid. um, And that seems good. Is the method going to be um, easy enough to communicate and and demonstrate to a community without a science background uh, that they'll actually, yeah, take a bunch of actions to get people to like, yeah, stay at home, quarantine en masse, which we've already seen is really hard. I would put most of my probability mass on the case where looking at the genome, you can just tell. Okay, that's reassuring. Which, but now that, that only gets you so far, right? 
okay, so the bulk of the scientific community, you show this and they're like, oh my God. And they tell all their families, we're not interacting with other people anymore. Sorry. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You're just going to have to trust me on this. Okay. That's pretty credible in and of itself. But is that enough to get a democratically elected government to actually take serious action? I don't know. Most of people I've spoken with in the policy level seem to suggest that the answer is probably no. Maybe if you do a lot of advanced preparation and briefings on, we think this is a thing, here's our monitoring system, you have been funding it, the whole point is that, you know, this is an attack, this is obviously adversarial, we need to find who did it, there needs to be an investigation, even if you're not going to order lockdowns, because lockdowns are almost certainly not the right thing to do anyway just because there's backlash and it's not everywhere. So you don't need to lock down everywhere and they're just going to make people resentful. You need to empower individuals to make their own decisions as much as possible once they're persuaded and ideally encourage the other side that doesn't believe from treating it as like something that we're going to use to shut down their freedoms. It's going to be hardest in the States, but maybe it'd also be easiest in the States. Like at least in the United States, 30% of the population will believe you no matter what, because 30% will not believe you no matter what. And maybe in many less polarized countries, you might struggle to even reach 10%. But in the U.S., you're basically guaranteed 30%. Uh, anyway, uh, long story short, you almost certainly need your defense establishment because otherwise you don't have resources. But even if the civilian government won't do anything, because imagine how costly it is if you're a politician. Like, your career is over if you're wrong. Right. If you raise these alarm bells and then... And even if, you, even if you're right, no one's going to be happy with you. Like, maybe you did the right, right. thing. You're not going to win any points for having done the right thing. Everyone's going to hate you by the time it's shown that right. you were actually right. Yeah. And so history might vindicate you, but you're going to get a lot of abuse and you're not going to be able to do anything else. It's going to sink every other policy priority. It's be a nightmare. But a lot of people are going to believe. And if you can at least make the protective equipment available to enough people so that they can protect themselves and you make it comfortable, easy to use, minimally impeding in your daily life, and you go out of your way to just block generic transmission in the environment, why don't all of our buildings have germicidal lights in all of the fixtures? Right, right. Together with whatever level of ventilation we can manage to put in. So so the world where this goes well, we're not forcing lockdowns, but we are empowering people with information to make their own decisions. And some people will believe and uh, avoid people if that seems like the sensible thing, or uh, hopefully have access to the kinds of equipment that are going to make it safe for them to do their jobs if that seems really important. So, So one thing is just like empowering people with information. Another thing is, it sounds like, using technology uh, to make the environment safer, to make it less likely that this pathogen is able to transmit between humans super easily. So yeah, let's talk about some of those because I think some of those are really cool. One of them is, yeah, is is UVC light. Can you explain the case for that? Yeah, so there's two forms of UVC light, really. There's the sort of classical UVC, which is often, was traditionally mercury vapor lamps. And so back in the day, Public toilets had UVC lights. Really? Just a germicidal lamp above them. And once you left the stall and closed the door, that would trigger the light and it would be on for a little while and it would sterilize everything there. Huh. And this was back in a world where where liability had not taken over quite so much. And if someone was dumb enough to be in there when the light was on, when obviously there was sufficient warning, then that was their own bloody fault. That was considered acceptable. (laughs) Now we do not live in that world anymore. (laughs) But they did a lot of studies, not just in that sort of thing, but also you can imagine if there's a room with reasonably high ceilings, you set up the lamps pointed basically upwards, or so you get just a sheet of sterilizing light, 
well above everyone's head. So even if you reach your hand up, you're not going to get exposed. Turns out this is pretty effective at blocking the spread of anything that relies on aerosols. Yeah, that's amazing. So it just shuts down tuberculosis. It can definitely slow the spread of even something as contagious as measles, as chicken pox, things like that. But it's not enough on its own. And that's probably just because it's only up there. And so you need some circulation of air going up and down. And if you're in conversation with people like across a table, your breath plumes basically go at each other. Yep. (laughs) And so this is where the other form of light comes in. So you really don't want to stick your hand into a traditional germicidal UV. It's not that bad. It's actually not very penetrating, but it's still bad. You don't want to, you don't want to do it. The really dangerous light that gives you sunburns and the like and skin cancer is actually UVB, not UVC. Even so, traditional UVC is not good for you. But if you go lower in wavelength, below 230 nanometers, 235, 230 nanometers, you start getting strong absorption by proteins, by the peptide bond itself. There's going to be more studies on this, and we have a paper coming out that details exactly what is the research agenda so that we can be absolutely confident that in the safety, what is every possible thing that could go wrong, we need to look at it to figure out how high we can go. Nice. That is, we have pretty good data that it's good for now. And the levels that are approved in the states are actually enough to eliminate 90% of aerosolized pathogens every minute. That's incredible. That's about 10 times as good as the crazy high ventilation rates on aircraft. Mm, Which already seemed to be solid during COVID, at least. Absolutely. So it's possible that if you just went up to current levels, that might be enough to suppress transmission of something even as contagious as Omicron. So you combine the two, you presumably get the best results. The really intense stuff up high and then and then the 222 when necessary. Safer stuff. And that is, yeah, right now it's too expensive to install everywhere, but this is a solvable technological problem. Solid state emission of 222 seems to, or the like, seems to be something that we can do. There are some folks that say, oh no, it generates ozone. Well, in most rooms, when you open the window, you raise the ozone level dramatically. Okay. So I'm not super concerned about that, but that's what better ventilation is for. And so... And at worst, you know, you can have, you sense the number of people in the room and you turn it on when there's multiple people and you have microphones and you turn it on higher when they're talking to each other or they're shouting or they're singing. All, you know, we know all this stuff. We know when people are highest risk, when there's crowds and people are shouting or talking or singing. Yeah, we have learned this the hard way. We learned this the hard way. We know all of this. So I am a huge believer as someone whose lab partly spends our time working with communities concerning the idea of engineering wild animals in their environment (laughs) to block disease transmission. That is the sort of thing where you need to invite anyone and everyone to express their concerns and you listen carefully because there may well be something in there that you weren't thinking about. In the meantime, you're developing cheaper and better energy sources for generating this kind of light. And then you start saving employers a lot of money. Yeah, there was a, an amazing statistic I read in one of your papers that um, American employers suffer an estimated $300 billion in productivity losses uh, to infectious disease each year. So businesses already have a strong incentive to install these kinds of protective lights once they're demonstrated to be safe. Do you think that will happen uh, kind of automatically? Is the incentive that strong once, once safety is demonstrated? Or do you think there will have to be a big push? Well, it sure is for, say, cruise ships. Mm. So there are certainly select environments where it's 
definitely going to be viewed as a major perk. And to some extent for employers, it depends on what kind of employers. I mean, say you're the type of big tech employer who tries to keep your employees in on site all the time and offer them perks like free daycare and all that jazz. And you pay them an average of half a million a year each. You really don't want them to get sick. <laughs> yep. So you're probably more incentivized to install them and install them in the daycare for their kids than an employer who, you know, runs a coffee shop. That is not the kind of environment that is necessarily going to be incentivized to install them sooner until it's reasonably well established as a prestigious thing that you can do to make your establishment safer. And once that's well established, then you should have the somewhat arms race of you can beat out your competitors by showing that by offering this as a general perk. But we shouldn't be that surprised at the cost, nor think of it as somewhat unbearable, because I believe total losses to fire, most of which is not actual losses to fire, it's spending on fire safety and prevention, also sums to about $300 billion a year in the United States. Wow. So since most of that is prevention, if we're willing to invest that for fire safety, shouldn't we do this for infectious disease? I mean, come on. I hate being sick. Yeah, no kidding. I am so miserable and I feel really bad for my partner because I am just the worst person to be around when sick. <laughs> and so they're like, when, when one of our kids gets sick, they say, you know what? Just stay away. Having to deal with you being sick is just so much worse than them yep. being sick. Just stay away. <laughs> I hate being sick. Yep. Fair um, enough, fair no, she's, yes, she's a saint. But yeah, if we can get rid of infectious disease, why would we not? Like, if you can save money and make people happier because they're not sick all the time, like, we're not going to do it because we're afraid of future pandemics, right? We're just not. I can talk as much as I want. I may have scared you. In general, I'm not going to be scary enough to scare everyone into spending hundreds of billions a year on infection prevention devices. But if it can save people money, if there is a market dynamic encouraging adoption, that's another story. So what we need is very rigorous safety data so everyone's on board. We need to know this is safe enough at the highest level that we think we can achieve. We need epidemiology studies showing that, yes, indeed, it blocks the transmission of not just of the things we're most frightened of from a pandemic perspective, but everything, at least everything airborne and ideally surface-borne as well. It's pretty good at sterilizing surfaces and so forth. And then we need the generation to make it cheaper. Although, again, the market will take that over of its own accord once you show that there's demand. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty hopeful of this. It's not a near-term thing. It's a given a decade out, certainly two decades out if we have that much time. You can definitely get it there, even in, you know, and high and middle income countries immediately, low income countries is going to take a while longer. But eventually, like, look at the cost curves for LEDs. Sure, sure. We can get there. And to everyone who's doing heroic work trying to control tuberculosis, gee, wouldn't it be easier if every light bulb sold in all the countries suffering from it had these kinds of germicidal lights? And this is why in the long run, I'm optimistic even though we will learn to program biology such that eventually you get infected, you're toast. We just have to assume that that is true. We will get that good at programming biology. We can probably use physics and engineering to just ensure that we never get infected. And computer science as well. Another thing, if there's anyone listening who thought that we could have done better than exposure notification, one of my friends, Po Shen Lo at Carnegie Mellon, came up with this idea that says, you know, contact tracing is the wrong way to go. You don't want people to 
learn when they're infected so you can figure out who else they might have infected so that they don't infect more people. You want to motivate people to change their own behavior and take fewer risks when they're at risk. Right. So what you want is an app that you can open that has been keeping track of who you've been interacting with. And so it knows for all of those people how many of them have reported that they've been infected in the last, say, week. So how many one-degree connections? Whether or not you know their names or not, your phone knows that you've been around them. And it knows who they've been around. So it also reports how many people two degrees from you have been infected, and three degrees, and four degrees, and five degrees. Because two people in the same city can have wildly different risk levels, but the app could tell them, and then they could take their own, you know, whatever level of precautions they're comfortable with, they could make that decision on their own. And with the right kind of cryptography, you can make this work in a privacy-preserving manner. So what I'm hoping is that we can build this thing, and it's getting easier as our phones get better and better and better, and battery batteries get better and proximity sensing gets better, and get it to the point where the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, which is the leading privacy advocate in this space, is willing to say, yes, this is a good idea, and we are willing to endorse Google and Apple rolling it out as an operating system update come the next pandemic. Cool. Yeah. And it would be an opt-out thing. You could Anyone could opt out if they wanted, but otherwise it would be in. The required threshold for it beca- starting to become effective is way, way, way lower than for contact tracing or exposure notification. And it's really just an empowering people to take the level of risk that they're comfortable with. Right. Yeah. I would have loved to have had that. Yeah. I guess going back to we're in this stealth pandemic scenario, uh, we've got kind of a the desired plan of action from from scientists and the the people that we need to convince to take it seriously. We've got some of the kinds of technologies that you want to make the environment a bit less dangerous for people. Uh, what else does it look like for this scenario to go well? I think we need a network of folks we're calling now expert responders. So these are, yes, scientists, but also physicians, trusted community leaders who may have a bit of a technical background and therefore feel confident that they could evaluate the thing once we discover something that we're very concerned about. And you could have a couple of tiers. You bring it to the first tier. Do they agree? Bring it to the next tier. What Agree, what do you need? But you would initially issue a preliminary warning saying, we discovered something concerning. It looks like it's engineered. It looks like it might be harmful. We don't, we don't know anymore, but just we decided you probably got to be transparent with everyone that, yep, we spotted something of concern and you might want to be careful. It's very uncommon still, but even so it's out there and we'll let you know when we know more. And then follow up with the investigations as we gain more data, identify people who are infected, study them and so forth, and then communicate the findings to essentially ratchet up the warning level, the more and more confident we are that this is in fact a stealth event. And these people can also help convey the possibility to their own networks in advance. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is the thing, right? How are you going to convince, you know, your country's defense establishment that they need to do something once they detect it? Well, it's a heck of a lot easier if it's been in their briefings for the last several years. Yeah. As this is a thing. And by the way, you're helping fund the detection system. And but note that it's going to be a problem because people, many people are not going to believe this is going to be the conspiracy theory, misinformation fed mess. You're pro- maybe you have to deal with someone deliberately trying to cry a false alarm in advance because people are trolls that way. And you, again, assume there is an adversary, assume the adversary. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to do that, but you have to build the network of trusted folks with relevant expertise from different disciplines and 
connections and trust in different communities in advance. Yeah, it's interesting that so much of the problem is like the sociological side. Uh, it sounds like we're we're making good progress on the science side, but this like then how do we get the people to do the things uh, does sound extremely challenging. But it also sounds totally right that if you've been in conversation with the defense community for five years, you've like shown them what your system is like and they're bought in and you're like, at some point we're going to come to you and we're going to say there's this pathogen that we found and it looks really bad. Like we're going to need you to like have a plan already that they might have a plan and that plan might, uh, might well, should make uh, make things go much, much, much better than if they were just uh, one, in some disbelief, and two, just totally surprised. Even in that case, which is like the best case scenario for this world, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how absolutely horrible it would be for uh, anyone who is infected uh, to know that you might well have a lethal virus or 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 a virus that's going to be horribly crippling in some in some way even if it's not lethal to not know when you're going to start presenting symptoms to not be able to see any of your loved ones for fear of yeah of like transmitting this terrible pathogen potentially killing them or crippling them in the same way it's just awful. It's unimaginable. So I can't even really begin to empathize with what that's going to be like for people. Yeah, that's precisely why we want to show that no matter what they do, they will not succeed in bringing down civilization. They can kill a bunch of the poor people who don't believe, or and some of those who just get unlucky, even if they take it seriously. But they will not succeed at the kind of harm that anyone trying this sort of thing would presumably be after. Right. So being so prepared that we've deterred That we can them. deter them because we, because we can't protect everyone, right? I'm ultimately optimistic. This is all the sort of thing where when you consider technology as a whole, it may well be defense dominant relative to biological offense. Mm-hmm. Within biology, I think it's unfortunately offense dominant, but you bring in the physics and the engineering, the computer science and all of these other tools, and I think we can actually get a handle on it all, but never perfectly, and especially in the stealth scenario. Although it's worth noting that if we, if we fail and we get very unlucky and there is a stealth scenario, it's no, it would never work again. Everyone would believe it the second time. Yes, 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 that's right. <laughs> um, but that first time, as you said, for the folks who are infected and believe, and even, and again, you want them to believe so that they take precautions, right? And don't go and infect other people. You have to give them hope. Yeah. So is, is there hope? What hope do they have? Sure. I mean, we, HIV is not a death sentence anymore, right? Sure as heck was back in the day, but it's not anymore. And this is one where it'll be the easiest to convince the bulk of the scientific community. And it's been inspiring how many people from every discipline just dropped everything to fight COVID. So I think it's very possible that you could just have the entire research enterprise pivot to figuring out how to defuse the consequences of infection, whatever they are. And so there'd be a, as good a chance as you could imagine that we would come up with something. Okay, so the whole scientific community would be mobilized to if possible, understand the thing and find a cure and hope that uh, one, it's curable and two, that uh, they find it in time. And I guess they don't even know how much time they have. But in in the very best case scenario, maybe there is a cure and maybe um, 
the number of people seriously harmed uh, isn't even that high. But that does bring us to the last point about the stealth scenario. The scientific community is not necessarily going to be willing to just go into their labs like normal, even given this motivation, because they believe that it's out there and they would be at risk and putting their families at risk. So this underscores the importance of ensuring that there is good enough protective equipment and just healthy buildings initiatives to block transmission in buildings, perhaps starting in research labs. I mean, one of the things my lab did in, during COVID is very early on, I figured, oh, this is obviously airborne. And therefore, we knew pretty early on that there weren't as many super spreading events in airplanes as you would expect. Therefore, one complete air exchange every three minutes is your target. What would it take to get our laboratory's rate up to that? And we just ordered 20 consumer grade HEPA air purifiers. HEPA filters, nice. And installed them in the lab and ran them full blast and had as safe as planes and then wore masks. And sure enough, we had zero infection events. Wow. But you're going to need to do something like that ideally in advance. And again, that's that was with COVID, which wasn't to young and healthy people all that serious. Although we were pretty scared at the beginning because everyone was and we didn't know for sure. But if it's something that is much worse than that, you're going to need enough reliable protective equipment for people to go out there. And this is also true. The better you are at persuading people of the risk, if they're essential workers, then you need protective equipment to persuade them that they can still go out there and keep everyone alive. Because I feel like that is one area where COVID taught us that some people are more essential than others, but we defined essential at a level that basically let society continue on more or less as it had with, you know, some restrictions on the sides, a few inefficiencies, but otherwise basically that. We need to be a little bit more serious about it. We need enough reliable, no fit testing required protective equipment like current poppers, but better and cheaper. Either we need enough for everyone at the outset, which would be the great way. Like that's the way that any nation can just be like, yep, we are totally ready for whatever comes. If it's stealth, we may not be able to persuade everyone to wear it, but it will be available for everyone. But if you aren't willing to put that in, in that kind of investment, you really need to know who needs it. And this is more important for the other scenario. Okay, let's move on to the wildfire pandemic scenario. Can you describe what happens there? Wildfire is fairly simple. There is a pandemic so contagious that we can't stop it. And although COVID showed us that most of society can in fact stay home and avoid getting infected in extremis, there's a, quite a lot of people who can't. The people who need to ensure the continued distribution of food, water, power, and law enforcement. Those folks still need to be out there. Some of them need to interact with other people. Any pandemic agent that is contagious enough to spread through those people and take them out will disrupt essential services and society will collapse. Yeah, that is terrifying. Um, does the, I mean, I guess we've, it wasn't the case that COVID was able to do that. Is it basically because it wasn't transmissible or lethal enough? And, and if so, how transmissible and lethal would, would the thing have to be? Yeah, well, that's a great point. But I think it's pretty clear that COVID was, in fact, transmissible enough because it did ultimately infect everyone. Now, that's in part because many people were not taking it seriously. And if there was something that was, say, 50% lethal, I think people would take it much more seriously. So you can argue then that we would perhaps adopt behaviors that would prevent infection among those essential workers. But we should also keep in mind that 
contagiousness levels go much higher than Omicron variant of COVID. Again, our estimate for Omicron is that it's probably somewhere between R0 of 4 and 5.5 with a upper bound of 6.8. And measles has been estimated to go as high as 18. So some models have suggested that even if everyone wears an N95 all the time perfectly, Omicron would still infect people. Wow. Let alone measles. So that suggests that there are viruses and bacteria that would end up infecting essential workers and certainly essential workers in places like meatpacking plants that did not have adequate infection control measures or anything even close. I mean, many of these essential workers are some of the most vulnerable members of society. And yet they're the ones who literally keep everything running. They are the ones who keep the lights on, the food on the table, the water in the taps, and order in the streets. And although you can imagine that you don't necessarily need the police per se, if you're willing to call down martial law and have the military do the same thing, you do need someone to be handling that. So the defense against wildfire is very straightforward. You need enough units of pandemic-proof personal protective equipment that don't require fit testing to be sent to everyone who is going to need it in the sense of the people who really do need to go out there and do their jobs or everything falls apart. All those people need protective equipment. If they have it and all of the people who make the protective equipment have it, then we can weather the initial surge while everyone else locks down. And then we need to have enough protective equipment for the next group of essential workers. So the primary are the ones who directly deliver those key services. Secondary essential workers are those that repair the equipment that the primary ones rely on or produce the kinds of supplies that the primary workers need. That is, the secondaries aren't needed immediately when the pandemic hits and everyone is terrified because, again, this is very different from COVID. This is a, if you get it, you are very likely to die. Just a wildly different setting. People would take it way more seriously. And the risk, in fact, is that too many people are no longer willing to go out at all under any circumstances because they quite reasonably believe if they get infected, they will likely bring it home to their families and then their families will die too. So... We just need enough for all the primaries, and then we need to ensure that we produce it fast enough to deliver it to all the secondaries in time for when their services are required. And then the complicating bit is what do we do about the group that we call life-saving workers? Because normally, historically, we have considered essential workers to be those required for the economy to run basically as normal. That's how we treated it in COVID. So this is why I would, I would, venture so far as to say that nation's lists of essential workers that they have today are utterly useless. I mean, I would be delighted if they used them and said, we just need that many pandemic-proof PPE units for all of them. That'd be great. But assuming that nations are not willing to look that far ahead, you really need to know who are the primaries, who are the secondaries. And the really harsh truth is if you're trying to ensure that civilization survives, you don't necessarily need medical workers. You don't need doctors and nurses and physician's assistants and all of the support that they require, nor do you need elder care, nor do you need social workers, nor do you need any of those things. Because if those people aren't there, lots of people are going to die. And that would be horrific and tragic. But from a very cold-eyed, cold-hearted perspective, that's better than almost everyone dying. 
which is what happens if you lose the truly essential services. So a sane government will invest in enough units for primary and secondary essential workers and all the life-saving workers. But if they don't, we at least need to know who those primaries and secondaries are and at an absolute minimum ensure that we can get enough units to them quickly. Now, the United States has this strategic national stockpile for essential medical goods and medical countermeasures and all kinds of disaster preparedness type stuff. Bluntly, I don't want the strategic national stockpile to have the pandemic-proof PPE. I mean, I would love it to have it stockpiled, but they're not very good at getting it out of the stockpile and into people's hands. Whereas we know for a fact that the private sector can do that reliably, probably on a next-day basis, but certainly within three days. Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. So we know we can deliver whatever to whoever very, very quickly using some services in society. And it is not obvious to me that the strategic national stockpile can do that. Now, perhaps they should just talk to Amazon and say, here is where it's going to be stored. You need to get it into your distribution network for delivery within, say, five days. Absolute maximum. Fine. But the point is, we need to know who are the essential workers. We need enough, we call it P4E units, pandemic-proof personal protective equipment, P4E for short, for all of those at a minimum, and preferably for all life-saving workers, and have lists of their addresses. And of course, essential workers includes all the folks who are going to be doing the deliveries, because everyone is going to need food. Are people going to need to go and pick up their food, or can we do online delivery? And this is another important aspect. Not everyone who works in a sector that is primary essential necessarily needs P4E, because few enough people work, for example, on ensuring that the water keeps flowing, that they don't necessarily need to interact with other humans. And that further goes that if you can arrange for distribution to be done in a way that the drivers don't need to interact with other people, that similarly cuts down on the number of P4E units that are needed. That said, people could very reasonably say, look, I know you say I don't need to interact with anyone else, but I am not leaving my house without protective equipment. And if we think that's how people are going to respond, we need to give them protective equipment because honestly, we should be doing it anyway. But if we have that, if we have the lists of who needs it and we have the equipment and we have stockpiled enough materials so that we can last until we have equipment for the additional groups of workers who are needed to, again, repair the essential equipment, provide the supplies and stockpiles of the new stuff where we don't have enough in reserve, then we'll be fine. Wildfire is an obviously solvable problem using our current capabilities, current technologies. How much does it cost? Well, it depends on how low you can get the price of P4E. I'm pretty confident we can get it down below $250. But the trick is we also would ideally want it to be comfortable and of course, it needs to be reliable and it needs to be convincing. People need to believe that it will work because if people don't believe it works, it doesn't matter whether or not it actually works. They're not going to go out there and keep everybody alive or probably not. We can't assume that they would. Yeah, yeah. I do have this intuition that I think just comes from the fact that, that people do life-threatening jobs every day that, yeah, that there would be some subsets of people who uh, either won't believe it's as bad as it seems uh, or who will be willing at a price to to do their jobs. But then I'm very sympathetic to like, uh, we should prepare for them not to be so that we don't end up, uh, yeah, horribly surprised and unprepared. And it's a bit ironic because those people are potentially saviors in the wildfire scenario. 
And they're the people who are contributing to the problem in the stealth scenario. The other thing is we do have some historical data to rely on here, which is we can look at the SARS-1 outbreak, which is about 10% lethality. And there was a lot of pressure on nurses and doctors, especially the ones who had families and young children, to not go to work. And you definitely saw a bias towards the young and childless as the ones in the wards. So at 10%, that's what you see. How high does it need to be to be a wildfire? Well, I don't know, but it would need to debilitate enough of the essential workers that services would collapse. That's the only way that you actually lose civilization. How hard is it going to be to convince people not to give uh, life-saving healthcare workers P4E so that they can go on doing life-saving work? That sounds like the kind of thing uh, people are going to find really, really objectionable. And I totally agree. It's just that people are bad at making trade-offs. And in any scenario where you can afford to, you absolutely should give them P4E. There's no question. So I'm not for a moment going to argue it. I'm just going to point out that suppose that we fail to bring down the cost of P4E and you just need to do it, buy it now. Call it $1,000 a unit. Okay, how many units are we going to buy? So in the United States, in terms of primary essential workers and then the very near-term secondaries, probably can get away with 20 million or so. So there's $20 billion. Last year, for context, Congress gave the Department of Defense $30 billion more than they asked for. So we could have just used that bonus that Congress handed to DOD to completely immunize the United States against wildfire pandemics. That's what I mean. This is a totally solvable problem. And then figuring out who needs it, like this is not super challenging. We did it on the fly for COVID, just under much reduced stringency in terms of who was needed to be essential. We can figure all this out. It's not that much effort. It's not that, that expensive. But if you wanted to get all the healthcare workers now, that's like 16% of the workforce on top. So there you're looking at probably more like 50 million instead of 20. If you want to get all of the medical workforce and the folks who support them. That's just a lot more people. And I guess that's if you include social workers, elder care, all of that jazz. So should we do that? Yes, absolutely. It's just, that's an extra $30 billion. Should we spend that? Yes, 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 we should. But if we're not, then it's really important that when the time comes, we recognize the fact that you ship the units to the most essential people. And those may not be medical workers. Now, you can always make an argument the other direction and say, if people believe that the hospitals are there to treat them, then they're more likely to go to work. Okay, that's fine. Maybe that's true. I don't understand human psychology. But then I tend to assume that against a competent adversary, healthcare system's not going to save you. And that's, again, somewhat different from the folks who think about more traditional, particularly natural-like threats, not enhanced. They tend to assume that the medical system will be able to do something, although it's worth noting that we really struggled to figure it out in the early days of COVID, and COVID was very mild. But eventually we got things running and could help. But against something more serious, where we don't have medical tools, specific medical countermeasures available yet, I would tend to assume you get infected and that's potentially it. And because if you're, that's not true, you're probably not talking about a wildfire pathogen to begin with. It sounds like you don't have uh, some exact percent lethality uh, that you need to have uh, to definitely be in a wildfire scenario where people are unwilling to go to work, causing something like civilizational collapse. 
I guess uh, I've heard something like uh, the reason we haven't seen pandemics uh, that have both high transmissibility and high lethality before um, in a way that causes this kind of uh, particularly horrible situation is because those things come with evolutionary trade-offs. Is that is that right? That's probably right for some pathogens and not for others. Okay. So certainly the Black Death had both. Certainly smallpox has both, or at least the varilla major strain is 30% lethal and are not between three and a half and six. So is that in wildfire territory? That's the only one, though, that we label as being probably transmissible enough. Because the Black Death, even if it weren't susceptible to antibiotics, was just not transmissible enough in the modern world. So the only one we know about is smallpox that we think would possibly be wildfire level today at 30% lethality. And it's worth noting that the Soviets almost certainly enhanced it to the point where when there was a accidental outbreak in the Aralsk region, out of 10 known victims, the three who were unvaccinated all died. And it was transmitted efficiently by vaccinated people, which wild type smallpox does not do. So clearly it is possible. And again, this caused an outbreak. They managed to contain it. They shut down all the trains. They, yeah, they got under control, but we have to assume that you can go from an existing natural thing to something higher. And again, that is still sort of playing by nature's rules, using natural-like things. And again, once we get good enough at programming biology such that these other capabilities can apply, we just don't know what is going to become possible. I would not assume that whatever natural trade-off exists between contagiousness and virulence is necessarily going to always apply. That is one of the things where if you're governed primarily by natural selection, then for many classes of pathogens, that appears to be a thing, though probably not for all of them, as best we can tell. Not a hard and fast rule. And what's more, even if there is a pathogen that is not evolutionarily stable, that is, mutants will accumulate that will, say, reduce the lethality over time, that doesn't mean it can't crash civilization first, because it doesn't take that many transmission events for a sufficiently high or not virus to go from release across a bunch of airports to infecting enough essential workers to bring down civilization. And that's just because you have a high enough multiplier of every person infects six or eight additional people. You don't require that many transmission of events in that chain until you get to very, very large numbers. Right. And just to make sure I understand the evolutionary trade-off, is it basically um, at some high enough level of lethality, uh, it can't actually spread very far uh, because it's killing people before it spreads? Yes, it seems to be linked to whether or not it kills you before you have a chance to transmit it. If the transmission window ends and then it kills you, like the stealth is an extreme version of that, then there's no potential limit. So some known pathogens often kill you after the transmission window is mostly closed. And so those ones don't seem to be particularly subject to the trade-off. And you can certainly imagine selecting viruses for that particular trait, or bacteria for that matter. We shouldn't just assume that the threat is only viruses, although that's certainly the near-term and accessible threat. So you could have a bacterium responsible for a stealth or a wildfire scenario. It's just that most bacteria tend to be susceptible to antibiotics, so we tend to have better medical defenses. That doesn't help you against a stealth pandemic because you don't know to use them unless you detected it. 
But against a wildfire, it would make a difference. So that's why we're not particularly concerned about, say, a souped up Black Death. Got it. That's helpful. Yeah. So I guess then it sounds like it is it is a bit of a trade-off, though not a rule. And yeah, and to what extent does engineering change that? You've made it sound like it might change the extent to which the trade-off keeps existing. Here is where I have to acknowledge there's a difference between my view and that of sort of traditional biosecurity researchers. Okay. As an actual biotech practitioner, if nature usually does something and it doesn't always apply, then it definitely doesn't apply to engineering. A lot of people would disagree with that, but from the engineering perspective, that's just how it is. If nature has some way around an apparent restriction, we can absolutely leverage that and probably come up with more ways around it. If nature flat out never does something, that does not mean that we can't do it. That just means it's not necessarily going to be trivial. It might be challenging. It might be impossible. But I would not assume that we can't do it because, again, nature is subject to fundamental limitations on how it discovers things, how it samples mutations, and the number of possible ways it can combine them in its discovery strategy that just do not limit us. Yeah. And in the case of smallpox, do we know why it uh, is less limited by this trade-off? Like what it, what secret evolution has found there to make it both very transmissible and very lethal? That is a great question. I am not a deep scholar of smallpox, so I don't know the answer. Fair enough. My guess is that it, most of the lethality is somewhat delayed after the transmission window. But it also doesn't seem to be one of those ones that transmits before any symptoms. It just does most of its transmission before the kind that get away from you. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So that's that's how this kind of thing might be possible and uh, probably made much easier if you're aiming right at it on purpose. And there are some additional complications, such as in the example of the Aralsk incident, where it was transmitted by vaccinated folks, which again, wild-type smallpox does not do. Smallpox is one of those where normally you expect sterilizing immunity. But the point is, whatever they did do it, enhanced it to the extent that it could spread, it could still replicate and transmit and cause symptoms in vaccinated people. And presumably because of those enhancements against someone who was not vaccinated, it just outright killed them reliably. So that suggests you could have a scenario where an adversary might release agents of multiple levels of stringency. That is, that enhanced strain might not have spread very efficiently in an unvaccinated population because it would have killed people too quickly but it would spread efficiently in a vaccinated population. So you could imagine releasing a strains of differing levels of severity under the assumption that we will vaccinate as many people as we can. And then there would be a more virulent version that could still hit the vaccinated folks. And if they happen to pass it to someone who is not vaccinated, boom, reliable death. And then there could also be a version that the vaccine might stop or at least slow and be effective against. So, and that, I guess, is the last point. Just do not assume that there is only one agent, because against deliberate actors, why would they stop with one agent? Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's horrifying. Are there approaches to kind of defending against this kind of wildfire pandemic that, that you haven't mentioned yet that seem particularly important? I think wildfire is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, not let anything reach people and make sure that the really, really important primary workers working on food and energy and water get to keep doing their jobs. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the complication comes in when you're designing P4E and investing in it. 
are you optimizing for wildfire where people may not care much about how comfortable it is <laughs> because they're sufficiently terrified they're going to wear it anyway. But in a stealth scenario, you need to make it as unobtrusive as possible. You need to make it comfortable. You need to make it stylish. <laughs> I would love to see fashion shows where competing designs for P4E get teamed up with <laughs> prominent fashion designers and you have runway shows and all that jazz. That'd be great. That's, that'd be great PR that the stuff exists. And, you know, you need some events, like one, imagine a, for a particular hilarious one, get some celebrity singers and then get a bunch of their fans and have them do a joint concert where the fans get to sing with the celebrities, but the celebrities all get the P4E and only half the fans do. And you're going to pump the room full of a common cold virus and then record the results in reality TV, right? Kind of extreme, but I think it would get the point across. Does the P4E really work? Well, Nobody wearing it should come down with that common cold and everybody else should. And that would make it pretty clear that, yep, you're okay. People just got to believe the suit that arrived on their doorstep will work and it needs to reliably work for them. Yeah, I guess for both wildfire and stealth, um, I feel like you've really driven home the point for me that we've got a lot of scientific solutions, but there's this huge challenge on the social side that still sounds like it requires a bunch of thinking or like maybe the thinking is also kind of done. Uh, we just need to do convincing of many, many people uh, who will be incentivized not to be convinced. But hopefully we can chip away at that. I'm not even sure it's all that negative because again, start with the defense, right? They can't afford to let active military personnel get infected with a debilitating virus if there's a possibility that a adversary was behind it. So they need... I would argue that they need P4E for all military personnel. There's just no getting around that. Like the standard respirators that they have for chem bio defense. Google says the DOD has 770,000 of those. It's not nearly enough for all enlisted personnel. And you really don't want to wear those for more than eight hours at a time. In fact, you don't want to wear them at all. They're really uncomfortable. <laughs> and so extended tours of duty, multiple eight hour usage. Yeah, you don't, you do not want to have to do that. And if you have to be deployed in a unit, you don't get to take it off after eight hours, right? This is just not a solution for a wildfire scenario. So if it's possible that an adversary could engineer something that transmissible, you just need to protect your enlisted personnel. So all militaries just need to invest in enough P4E units, I think. You just can't assume that bio is not going to be a potential vector of attack anymore. We're getting good enough at programming it, and we believe that despite the norms set by the Biological Weapons Convention, some countries are almost certainly violating that. So you got to invest. And again, relative to a standard military budget, it's just not that much money. So once you do that, you have law enforcement covered because you can always declare martial law and have the military do cover law enforcement. And then you've established a market for P4E and some pressure for optimizing it. And then you're a good chunk of the way there. Okay, that's given me a bit more hope and I do feel inspired. And if there's anyone out there who wants to help. If anyone wants to help develop better P4E, absolutely, right? I mean, this is, a, this is my one big takeaway that is very counterintuitive, which is that if you want to help fight bio-risk, you probably don't want to go into biology because biology creates the problem, but it cannot create reliable solutions to that problem. You'll note that 
Wildfire is very solvable, but you need P4E to solve it, which is not a biological technology. Stealth is solvable, but what you need to solve that one is sequencing, informatics analysis, computer science, and again, P4E and things like germicidal lights and better ventilation. And possibly, again, computer science and cryptography for apps that tell people their individualized risk level. None of these tools is particularly biological except for the sequencing. And even that is, you know, touch and go. Yeah. Okay. Moving to a very different and uh, kind of more positive topic. Uh, You've worked on what feels like dozens of incredibly interesting and important biology issues, and we've barely scratched the surface. But I did want to squeeze in a few questions about some of the science you've worked on that really struck me as particularly relevant to some really pressing global problems besides biosecurity. Um, So a big one is CRISPR which you worked on alongside George Church, um, which I've heard described as uh, using like the find and replace on a Word document, but for DNA sequences in a living organism. Scientists can apparently find a gene they want to modify and just replace it with an edited gene, uh, which is incredible. Can you, can you talk about some of the real-world applications you're most excited about using gene drives for at the moment? So just to be clear, I played only a very minor role in developing CRISPR. So we were one of the groups that first managed to publish on how it can be used to edit the genomes of mammalian cells. Obviously, Jennifer and Emmanuel deservedly won the Nobel for it, et cetera, et cetera. So my main contribution was in noticing that you can encode CRISPR into the genome of an organism, and then any organisms that inherit CRISPR will do genome editing on their own. So if you imagine that you can ensure that the replace function works, you can imagine encoding a alteration in the genome that you want to see in a species as a whole, and you encode CRISPR next to it, the same CRISPR that you use to introduce that initial find and replace sequence in the DNA text. When that organism mates with a wild organism, the offspring will inherit one engineered version plus CRISPR and one wild version. CRISPR will turn on, it will find the site in the wild version, it will cut it, and it will replace it with the engineered version and itself. So this is a one form of CRISPR-based gene drive. Cool. And remind me why it's called a drive? Because it's doing find and replace at the population level. And this is something that nature does all the time. There are a lot of natural gene drives. What's different about CRISPR is it's programmable. So if you can use CRISPR to do the find and replace on the genome in the first place, and the organism is amenable to doing the replace function efficiently, and that depends on the organism and the cell type when CRISPR turns on, and whether you express any other things that will direct it to do replace rather than, say, oh, no, you made a deletion at this point in the text, and I'm going to jam the letters together, and there will be something nonsensical there, which is the other alternative. If you do get the replace function, then you can get efficient spread through the population. And because CRISPR can be targeted to any sequence you want, this in principle means you can drive any kind of change you want. There are some limits, but within sexually reproducing organisms, that will do replace. Now, the exciting bit is that the species that is absolutely best at doing replace is, very conveniently, the number one malaria vector 
Mianopolis Gambier Mosquito Complex. They are up to 99% efficient at doing replace. So CRISPR does the cut. It reliably copies over the gene drive system. So how does this help us? Well, any one of three ways. We can turn them all into males. Population crashes to a level that is low enough that it, they can't transmit malaria anymore. We can take out a female fertility or viability gene that needs two copies to function. So the drive spreads rapidly when it's rare because females would have one copy or fine. But as soon as you get a female that inherits two copies, no more reproduction. So the population, again, crashes to a level that's too low to transmit malaria. But notably, the mosquito is not going to go extinct, or at least not unless we release a lot of these things very deliberately trying to drive it extinct. Natively, it's just not going to go extinct on its own. It will just decrease it to levels that, again, can no longer transmit malaria. And then the third way is we could try to put in some molecular blockers into the mosquito that prevent it from getting infected with malaria itself. I'm personally somewhat less enthused in that just because then you have the full evolutionary power of the malaria parasite trying to evolve ways around your blocks. And we are much better at programming CRISPR to hit a new sequence and therefore finding a new way of crashing the population than we are at coming up with a new molecular block against the parasite. And with malaria, if you've been exposed to it a lot recently, you developed what's called clinical immunity. So this is why it primarily kills children, because adults have had it before. But if you're an adult and you go for long enough without being exposed, you lose your clinical immunity. So this happened notably in Madagascar, um, but at other places in the world where we pushed back against malaria and eradicated it from whole areas and populations, and then it came back, the lethality rate was much higher. So you really want to get it right the first time. And I'm on an evolutionary level, I'm just much more convinced of our ability to keep ahead of natural selection when we are using CRISPR, which is trivial to reprogram to hit new sites, than if we are trying to encode fancy antibodies to block this famously elusive malaria parasite. So the question, of course, is who gets to decide which version we use, if any? Who develops it? How you test it? Because note, you're not testing the full power version because there is no such thing as a field trial of a self-propagating gene drive. It is the equivalent of a highly invasive gene in the sense that it will spread to all populations connected by gene flow, which means, by the way, you have to assume that human trolls will move it. That is, if you think that geographic barriers will prevent it from spreading, if there is any human in the world that thinks it would be funny or that they could make a profit by moving some, then you should assume that that will happen. So for example, cane toads in Australia, horrific invasive species. Could we build a gene drive to take out the cane toads in Australia? Yes. What is the risk though that someone is gonna take samples of cane toad eggs or baby cane toads or whatever and move them back to South America just for shits and giggles? That's humanity, right? There's a decent chance that someone will do that. So maybe you don't wanna do a full power version. So that broadly means gene drive you can separate into two use cases. Cases where we want to edit the whole species. And then again, that raises the question of who decides. Is it everyone who lives in the area? That's generally our watchword. Only tackle problems first that everyone agrees are a really obvious problem that may warrant engineering a species or at least a population of a wild species. And then you start very small and see what happens with your intervention in each relevant ecosystem. If it looks like everything's okay, then you can scale up. But that means you do not use the full power version out at the gate because then you don't get to see what happens. You know, we don't 
freely admitted, we don't understand ecosystems very well. We do know that we haven't found any instances of any predator that depends on Anopheles gambiae mosquitoes for more than 5% of its diet. If you're a spider or a bird or a bat or whatever, and you eat a mosquito, you don't care what species it was. There's a thousand species of mosquitoes in Africa, literally. <laughs> Nothing depends on just that one for the bulk of its diet or the males sometimes pollinate flowers. Nobody depends on just that one species as far as we can tell. But what do we know about ecosystems? Some, but there's a lot that we don't. So again, you want to try it on a small scale, see what happens, and then scale up. Yeah. Can you explain how you do that? Well, we came up with what we call a daisy drive, which basically is where you split up the CRISPR components across different chromosomes. And you think of it as a daisy chain that has a directionality, and it drives in that direction. So each element of the link in the daisy chain that has an element behind it gets copied via the find and replace function. But the one on the end doesn't. It's a normal gene, so it can be lost through normal inheritance mechanisms. And in offspring that don't inherit it, the next link in the chain is now the end, and it doesn't get an advantage anymore. And so it's like a genetic fuel. You run out, you just lose links in the chain until it stops. So this daisy drive is inherently localized, but it does the same thing. That is the edit at the end of the chain, which is whatever you're using to cause your effect on the species. That is identical to the full power version. So it's a great way of just testing, how does this work in this ecosystem? So that's the way forwards. Amazing. Yeah. What's an example of a case where we might use gene drives? Well, malaria is an obvious one. And if you don't get malaria right, then you probably don't get a chance to use it against anything else, with possibly a one or two exceptions. But there's probably only four where you'd really definitely want to use it anyway, at least that I've come up with. So those are malaria. There's schistosomiasis, which is a horrific intestinal kidney slash bladder worm that causes growth and cognitive stunting and currently infects 200 million plus people. And schistosomiasis is particularly horrible because we have a reliable treatment, praziquantel, that costs cents per dose. It's just that it's so rife in the waters in much of the world that people who just go in the water just get reinfected immediately. So it's a case where just medical countermeasures, again, are just not enough. There's just too much of it. You just have to redose people over and over and over and over again. It's one of the most effective charities we have, of course, as many listeners probably know. But sure, it'd be nice to just take out the source. And that's what a gene drive could do. Then there's the desert locust. So this is the solitary desert grasshopper that when it rains in the desert blooms, they eat all the new vegetation. And then once the population grows and they come in close proximity, they actually undergo a stable, inheritable epigenetic switch. They become, rather than being solitary, they become gregarious. They form swarms and they fly out of the desert and they eat everything in sight. And so this is what causes mass area crop failures and famines. And it has since ancient times, which is why this is God's eighth biblical plague. Well, at risk of the playing God criticism that we discussed, this is one where we can probably tame God's eighth biblical plague because that switch is genetic. And we know that the solitary phase is stable. That is, for more than a thousand years, there have been populations living in the desert that have never swarmed and left and come back. So if we just use a gene drive to switch off the swarming behavior then they will stay in the desert as solitary desert grasshoppers and not cause horrific famines out in the world outside. And then once we're no longer dependent on agriculture and those reasons, if we want, we can switch it back. So that would be a particularly elegant one. But again, in both of those cases, we're talking more than 60 countries that would be affected in each of those. Maybe not quite 60 in the case of malaria, but certainly for schistosomiasis and the desert locusts. That's just a lot of countries affected. 
Interesting. Yeah. And what was the fourth one? So the fourth one might actually be the easiest to get going. So this is the New World Screwworm, which has the amazing scientific name of Cochleomyia hominivorex, the man devourer. But it doesn't primarily eat humans. It feeds indiscriminately on warm-blooded things, so mammals and birds. And it is a botfly that lays its eggs in open wounds, anything as small as a tick bite. And it's called the screwworm because the larvae are screw-shaped, and they drill their way into living flesh, devouring it. And as they do, they cultivate bacteria that attract new gravid females that lay more eggs and continue the cycle. So you have this macabre dance of parasitization that results in the animal being devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots. And we know that it's horrendously painful because people get affected by this. And the standard of treatment is you give them morphine immediately so that surgeons can cut the, the things out because it's just that painful, unbelievably agonizing. And by my back-of-the-envelope calculations, there's about a billion hosts to this every year. So a billion animals are devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots every single year. We even know that we can eradicate this species from at least many ecosystems and not see any effects because it used to be present in North America too. And we wiped it out using nuclear technology, oddly enough. Some clever folks noticed if you irradiate the larvae, then they grow up sterile. And if you release enough of them, then the wild ones will mate with a sterile one, and they only mate once. And so you can suppress the population to the point of not being there anymore. And so we did this first up through Florida and then across West and then down through Texas and the Mexican border. U.S. Department of Agriculture then inked a deal with the Mexican government to eradicate them from Mexico because the southern border was shorter and therefore cheaper. And then they just went country by country through Central America to Panama. And the southern border of Panama is the shortest. So American taxpayer dollars today contribute to the creation and maintenance of a living wall of sterile screwworm flies released in southern Panama that prevents the South American screwworm from reinvading North America. 10 million released every week. Wow. But there's too many of them in South America to wipe out, wipe out by that means. And so the way forward is obviously gene drive. If the Mercosur countries agree that they want to get rid of the New World screwworm, they can start with something like a daisy drive locally. And Uruguay is working on this then they can wipe it out from their, their country. Uruguay suffers, they lose about 0.1% of their total country's GDP to the screwer because they're so dependent on animal exports. I mean, Uruguay and beef is, a, to those listeners who eat beef, I'm going to start fights here, but it's better than beef from Argentina even. But anyway, they're all very concerned about their beef and screwworm is horrific. And it also, of course, preferentially hurts poor farmers who struggle to afford the veterinary treatments for their animals. And of course, they hate to see it because here you're watching these animals that you're caring for literally get devoured by flesh-eating maggots, and it's agonizingly painful. But from an animal well-being perspective, in addition to the human development, typical lifetime of an insect species is several million years. So 10 to the 6th years times 10 to the 9th hosts per year means an expected 10 to the 15th mammals and birds devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots. For comparison, if we continue factory farming for another 100 years, that would be 10 to the 13th broiler hens and pigs. So unless it's 100 times worse to be a factory farmed broiler hen than it is to be devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots, then when you integrate over the future, it is more important for animal well-being that we eradicate the new world screwroom from the wild than it is that we end factory farming tomorrow. What a take. I also love the 
in general, just the application of gene drives for animal suffering in particular. I'd heard of many applications for, for human benefit, but the, the idea that we can make a dent on some wild animal suffering was just really moving to me. I also, I feel like there are loads of concerns about kind of messing with an ecosystem. Uh, in this case, it's already happening just through a different method that can't be scaled up. Uh, and so it just seems like a really great case of like, okay, we've got this way to scale it up much bigger, eradicate this this horrible, horrible insect in more places. If it might matter to some listeners, they might be concerned about the moral implications of actually driving a species to extinction, which of course is also what we're proposing for the malaria parasite, but not the mosquitoes, right? and also for the schistosome. But for something that is not you know, a major human disease, not a microbe, here we'd be proposing eradicating the screwworm itself, the fly, the macroscopic thing from the ecosystem everywhere in the world. But it's worth noting that this is actually reversible because screwworm is one of those comparatively few insects whereby you can freeze the larva and unfreeze them decades later and they're perfectly viable. So we don't have to drive them extinct. We just need to remove them from the wild and then we can keep them on ice. So if we, for some reason, decide we need them again later, we can reintroduce them. It's just we got to ensure if you want the animal welfare benefit, one of the things that really I find attractive is when you think about how much suffering humans have inflicted on animals in the course of our species, it almost certainly does not outweigh 10 to the 15th mammals and birds devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots. So to the extent that we're now net negative on the scale, all we have to do is before civilization collapses or we disassemble the earth or whatever futurists think we're going to be doing. But even if we lose, even if we fail and civilization collapses or even we go extinct, as long as we remove the new world screwworm first, we will be in morally net positive territory when it comes to our impacts on other species well-being. That's tremendously inspiring. Yeah, I completely agree. But it's none of my business because I don't live in South America. It's their environment. It's their call. And so I would also urge folks to, if you want to reach out and know who to support, in South America to fund that project. I'd be happy to connect folks. But moralizing about how they have this moral duty to do this for the benefit of all humanity, probably not very helpful. If they decide to do it, it's going to be for their own reasons. And us hectoring them is not going to be useful to the cause if you care about seeing it happen. Yeah, it sounds like in this case, it's a win-win. It doesn't sound like anyone in South America is enjoying their livestock being uh, eaten alive by these worms. Uh, but yes, that sounds totally right. It does sound like we on our podcast uh, should not spend too much time moralizing when it is their, their land. And in the long run, you can imagine using gene drive for a series of more elegant tweaks. So got problems with pests seeding your crops? Program them to not like the taste and otherwise go about their normal ecological business. Got a problem with, I don't know, predators devouring their prey in ways that cause suffering? Program them to you know, secrete anesthetic from their fangs. Sounds amazing to me. There's a lot of things that we could do with that, but, you know, we're a long ways away from understanding enough biology to do that. But eventually we could get there. Now, natural selection is always going to fight back, of course, because these are useless traits from its perspective. But gene drive is an example of, well, there's different levels of natural selection. And by choosing the one that we're interacting with, we can sometimes overcome one from another area. And this also, I have to confess, is my bias. Right? A lot of people just look at it and say, nope, you just can't win fighting nature, ever. Well, my job is harnessing and controlling evolution. And CRISPR-based gene drive works. We haven't used it in the wild yet, thankfully, because there's no country that has decided, yep, 
we definitely want to do this and the species doesn't exist outside our borders, so go for it. But certainly works in every laboratory setting we've seen with very, very high success rates, certainly in the Anopheles gambiae mosquitoes and lower replace rates in others, but it still works. So it sure looks like we do, in fact, have a way of overcoming natural selection, even in the wild outside of our control, which is tremendously inspiring with respect to what we could do that's positive, but tremendously worrying with respect to what's negative. So the day after I realized that CRISPR-based gene drive was possible, I woke up in a cold sweat because I was thinking, this is wildly different. Could this be misused? Could this be weaponized? So I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't tell George Church, who was my advisor at the time, who I was working with. I didn't tell him until I was confident that this technology favored defense. And I concluded that based on assessing that it's slow. It only spreads parents to offspring. So it, on average, you get about 1.5x increase per generation-ish. So it's slow. If you sequence anything and there's a gene drive in there, you will see it because it has CRISPR, which is never found in sexually reproducing organisms, along with genes from a sexually reproducing organism in the same sequence read. So you cannot possibly miss it and you cannot possibly disguise it. It is obvious. And then the third and perhaps most important is it can be easily countered. If you have a gene drive that works that you see that is doing something you don't like, you can always take that working demonstrated version, remove whatever problem it's causing, and add extra instructions for CRISPR telling it to cut and replace the original. So then yours will be just as good at spreading through the wild because it has the same instructions for CRISPR to do that. So it will immunize the wild population against the bad one. And whenever it encounters the bad one, it will replace it with itself. So we call this an immunizing reversal drive. And when we finally got to the point where we were confident in actually testing it in the lab, which was only after we disclosed it to the public on grounds of this technology is defense dominant. It is about changing the shared environment. That's different from developing a drug because people don't get to opt out of changes to the environment. So you need to be unusually transparent from the beginning and invite concerns and criticism so that everyone has a chance to have a voice in the development. But when we did test it, we built one gene drive in yeast, which was the safest organism we thought we could reasonably test it in. And we built that one to knock out a gene and we built another one to overwrite the first one and replace it. And they both work perfectly. So slow, obvious, and easily countered. That to me says defense dominant. It's hard to imagine any attack that is slow, obvious, and easily blocked that can cause serious harm. Most biotech is not like that. Pandemics are obviously not like that. Pandemics can be fast, pandemics can be stealthy, and pandemics can be unblockable. In fact, wildfire is some combination of so fast you can't counter it in many ways, or just outright unblockable if there's a version that was slow and then we just could never come up with a countermeasure, but it was so contagious even with a lengthy incubation period that it just would infect everyone. There's nothing we could do. And then, of course, the self scenario really literally is something that's just so stealthy. We just won't know it's there until it's too late. So this really shaped my thinking on this. And it was terrifying because there's no guidance to an inventor like, oh, you just invented a technology that can exponentially spread on its own without human control. What do you do? Had to figure it out. There was really no guidance. So, yeah, it would be great as we get more and more powerful technology, if we provide guidance to people as to how to think about these things, what is offensive versus defense dominant, what is safe to tell the world, and what do you do if it is offense dominant, given that someone else is going to invent it eventually. So maybe you shouldn't tell anyone, but maybe you should. And how do you decide? 
So this is the sort of meta-level challenge of increasingly powerful technology development. Because again, in the end, as Feynman said, what I cannot create, I do not understand. We seek to understand things well enough to obviate material scarcity and grant all our wishes, more or less. That level of power is also sufficient to, in an offense-dominant technology, to which we don't yet have the defense, constitute a big red button. And you disseminate enough big red buttons to enough people, someone's going to push it. So this, to me, says... You want progress in technology? Defense first. So that means we need to identify which technologies are defense dominant and preferentially push those and possibly slow down the offense dominant stuff. But that's much more controversial. But the very least we can agree, accelerate the defensive stuff. And that's, I think, the high level point. And this applies not just to bio, this applies to AI, this applies to nuclear, this applies to geoengineering interventions, this applies to brain-computer interfaces. This applies to everything. Invent the defense first. For any listeners who, who've heard you talk about gene drives now, and in particular, some of the, the more subtle uses, like getting, I don't know, certain animals to disprefer the taste of our crops, I imagine some of them will will just be overwhelmed by the like unnaturalness of it, uh, the like tinkering with uh, natural things in the world. What would you say to them? I've spent a lot of time talking with people from very diverse cultural backgrounds who have taught me that there is a tremendous amount that I don't understand about what people value. And more often than not, there are underlying accurate heuristics to evolved cultural views on the appropriateness of doing things that are very useful and we should ignore at our peril. So I can point to working with the Maori of Aotearoa, New Zealand. The, the Mataranga Maori is a traditional knowledge of, of ecosystems and interconnectedness, but it's also an associated way of looking at the world. There's the physical, there's the mental, and there's the spiritual. And as a wonderful <laughs> Maori colleague put it to me, he says, it's not your fault, but you, your culture only taught you to deal with the physical. And I was like, really? We can't don't even get the mental? Really? I mean, I, I, get, I get that I'm blind to spiritual. Fine. Like, okay, granted, this is why I listen to other people on that. But we're, you know, we don't even get credit for the mental? No, not the way they think about it. No. So there's these two spheres that they view as, you know, two thirds of it, what is important about human experience that I just don't get because that's my cultural background and my reductionist mindset to how things work. So there really is something to the division between what some call metis, so sort of evolved cultural holistic knowledge, which tends to be place-specific. It doesn't generalize well outside the area where it evolved. So this could be, you know, anything from understanding ecological interactions in Aotearoa that might not generalize outside to, say, how you prepare a cassava plant to remove the poison so that it's actually safe for consumption. And these are, you know, that's an elaborate enough process that it would be quite the scientific research project to work out all the optimal steps using primitively available technologies, but cultural evolution eventually figured it out. And if you were to simply apply the experimental method to the project of detoxing cassava, you would notice that you could skip a lot of those steps and feed it to your family and everyone would be fine. And so you could then go off and use that time to help your family in other ways, right? And then 10 to 20 years later, you'd die of cyanide poisoning. And so would your family. Oops. Turns out being a rationalist in that environment was massively bad for your health and reproductive fitness <laughs> and therefore cultural fitness, right? 
So we ignore local metis, local culturally evolved knowledge at our peril. And I would say that also includes just ways of the human experience. So the naturalness heuristic, if it's we're doing something that's obviously not the way things have been done, I view that as a sort of useful formulation of Chesterton's fence. The idea of if you don't know why a fence is there, you should probably figure it out before you remove it because someone built it. It's there for some reason. And until you know what that reason is, you should be careful and not remove it. But nature is amoral. Look at the screwworm. The long project of civilization has been freeing us from natural constraints that cause us suffering. That is what technology is. So if you think that it is good for people to die of smallpox, then I don't really know what to say to you, but you are at least being faithful to the naturalness heuristic, because humans are meant to be dying of smallpox all the time. We are meant to be dying of famine. We are meant to be killing each other. That is what nature would have us do. So it's a heuristic. We should be very careful of it. We should understand also that it's not always right. And we should think about it very carefully. And this is why I struggle with the cases like malaria so much. Because if my kids lived in Africa and were vulnerable, I would say, heck, I don't care about additional safe field trials and daisy drive and all that jazz. I don't even really care about getting international agreement. And I wouldn't be worrying about, oh, well, if we can't use it for malaria, then we won't be able to use it for schistosomiasis. If something goes wrong, we got to be careful. No, my kids are at risk. Screw it. Do it now. Kids are dying. My kids are at risk. My kids might die of this. Do it. How could you not do it? There's just an overwhelming moral imperative to do it now. Even if you step back from a consequentialist perspective, you might say, no, actually, you got to wait, because if you piss off one government enough, they don't cooperate in the eradication campaign. It could evolve around your gene drive eventually, given a decade. If you haven't gotten it to zero, parasite could come screaming back, end up killing a lot more people, a lot more money is required than if you just waited an extra year to bring them on board, right? So there's a lot of reasons to not do it now, but good gods, if my kids live there, I would say do it now. So you got to be sensitive to that. And I think... This is a, why my number one watchword that I do think applies to pretty much every possible case is humility. Humility is the most useful virtue because it causes us to question our assumptions no matter what they are, even all the way up into moral systems. And I view this as vital because we know that in mathematics, you can't have consistency and completeness at the same time. And if you can't have that in mathematics, why on earth do you think you can get it out of morality? Every moral system is wrong. Every moral framework is wrong. It's kind of like all, model, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Same deal. So always question it. And that goes for the naturalness heuristic, and it also goes for whatever we're setting up against it. So to, that was a very long-winded and theoretical philosophical discussion, but it comes down to, look, right now we're using chemicals that, to kill the pests and a bunch of other insects that are not targeted. And this is very bad. And it'd be better if we didn't have to do that. So... Another way, thing that we do that many people object to is we program the crops to kill the pests or anything that eats them. You can argue that's better ecologically because now you're not killing any insects in the environment that are not eating the crops. But then a lot of people object to that because they don't want to eat engineered things because, again, naturalness heuristic. If it wasn't there in the organism before, maybe you should question whether it's safe. And again, that's a reasonable first principle heuristic. Very reasonable. So then it comes down to, if you ask people, would you rather we engineer your food or would you rather we engineer the main pests that eat the food? And they will 
without exception, say, please engineer the pests. And I know this from our efforts working with communities, guiding our development of technologies to prevent the spread of Lyme disease. Because we've been working mostly with folks on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, which are sort of the extreme opposite scenario from the malaria project. It's a case where, yes, everyone agrees Lyme disease is a huge problem, some of the highest rates in the world on these islands. But there are no issues with power dynamics because these are some of the most politically influential communities in the world. They are some of the best educated communities in the world in that virtually everyone on the island knows someone with enough technical background to understand exactly what we're doing. And they have a tradition of New England town hall democracy of getting together to discuss these issues and decide. So it's sort of the easiest possible place to test out community-guided eco-technology development, which is in large part why we cho chose it. Also, it's really great to you know, get to go off down to the Cape and then to Nantucket in the vineyard as part of your work. This is a, this is a plus and my lab appreciates it. <laughs> so we've run into a lot of people there who, you know, crunchy nuts and granola hippie type views who are like, you know, we don't feed our kids GMOs if we can help it. And until pre-COVID, there was also a, and I'm not so sure about vaccines either, but pretty much all of these people hate Lyme disease. And when it comes to the question of, could you engineer the mice so that they don't infect the ticks? They say, well, yeah, of course you should do that because it's not going to go in their bodies. And they don't necessarily like the idea of engineering the environment, but what's the alternative? That we spray a bunch of pesticides and caricides to kill the ticks? That's going to kill a bunch of other stuff. And they know that. Or we need to shoot all the deer. Well, they don't want to shoot all the deer because Bambi. So given the choices, live with Lyme disease, shoot all the deer, spray a lot of pesticides and still get Lyme disease, or add a gene taken ideally from a white-footed mouse into the germline of the white-footed mouse so that all of its descendants that inherit that gene are immune, there you're not adding anything new that wasn't there in at least some mice already. Some mice do develop immunity over time, acquired immunity. All we're doing is taking the gene responsible for that and encoding it in the mice so they can pass it on to their descendants. That's not natural, but we're not adding anything that wasn't already there in a mouse. And that matters to people tremendously. They very strongly prefer that you not add something that wasn't already there. And you have to keep in mind, though, that if you have the power to solve the problem, you are morally responsible for the consequences whether or not you use it. And it's the not that's important. Everyone agrees that if you intervene and something goes wrong, it's your fault. It's your moral responsibility. Because I chose to tell the world about CRISPR-based gene drive, it's in some level on me. It's my moral responsibility. But if I had chosen not to, and then it took longer to use it for beneficial applications, that's also on me. And so if we choose to do nothing when we could have done something, we are morally responsible for the continuation of the status quo, be it Lyme disease, malaria, or any other problem that we could solve with technology. So I suppose this is a very long-winded way of saying I can come across as a, whoa there, technology can be super dangerous and we need to be ultra cautious and let's go slow and advance defense and not other stuff. I'm actually very pro-technology. I'm a technophile. I think that we can ultimately build a world of incredible flourishing beyond the wildest dreams of the ancestors who gave us this world, which is so much better than theirs. I think we can pass that on to our descendants, multiplied many fold, something that beyond what we can currently imagine. But we can't do it if we make a misstep and everything crashes and burns. And as the power goes up, the chance that we can make that kind of misstep 
necessarily grows. So yes, progress, but defense first. Okay, that sounds like a perfect, perfect way to end. I guess before we totally wrap up, I'd like to ask one more question. If you just had to completely change careers and somehow became totally indifferent to making the world a better place, what would be the most self-indulgent or enjoyable career you'd pursue instead? I would love to be one of the active rich. (laughs) Not one of the idle rich, because that's boring. But I would love to be one of the active rich who doesn't need to worry about security, who doesn't need to worry about whether my children will live a flourishing life. He doesn't need to worry about people dying or suffering somewhere or whatever. I want to live in a world where we've obviated material scarcity, where no one has to suffer unless they want to, or no one has to wither away and cease to exist involuntarily. Because then I can read books. I can write books. I can tell stories. I can listen to stories. I can explore. I can discover. I can wander. I can learn new ways of viewing the world. I can decide to become a different person. Maybe eventually I can be multiple people at once and I can continue doing all of the amazing things in the adventure that we could have ahead of us. If we get this right, I can have my family and not worry about them, not worry about what happens to them. And some people say, well, this is horrible. I mean, think about John Stuart Mill's crisis of confidence when he imagined the world, if all of his reforms came to pass and everything was great. And he asked whether he wanted to live in such a world, and part of him screamed in horror, because then what would there be left to do? What purpose would there be? Well, okay, that's a problem, but then that's a purpose. Figure out what our purpose is. Okay, fine, deal. Accepted. Challenge accepted. We'll deal with that. (laughs) And if it turns out we have to run simulations uh, with philosophical zombies who don't actually morally matter, in which we're giving ourselves the illusion that, in fact, we are saving everyone that actually does matter and we never figured out otherwise, and we consciously choose that, fine. That's great. Along with all the other things, I want to, I'm a, not a very good mathematician. I would love to get better and see if I can stare straight in the face of truth. I am a terrible artist. I would love to understand much more than I currently do what it is that beauty means. I would love to explore that across the senses that I don't currently have. And when I think about what matters most to me today, which again, I'm biologically programmed enough that that's probably my family and my children right? And caring for them because it is very true that you have children, all of a sudden a switch flips and you just, that, that's what you care about. That's what natural selection gave us. That is the gift of evolution. That is the positive side to all of the suffering and horror. That's what makes everything worth it. And evolution tried hard at that, right? It had to, it had to provide enough rewards to keep us going, to make that feel good. But just like I believe that we can do better than natural selection, when it comes to causing harm, I also believe that we can do better when it comes to engineering flourishing. Whatever that means, I think that we can explore vistas that no human has ever before imagined. And I would love to see that day without having to worry about whether someone's going to engineer a pandemic to wipe us all out. <laughs> what a great answer. My, my guest today has been Kevin Esfeld. Thank you so much for coming on, Kevin. Thank you, Louisa. If you enjoyed that, you might want to check out a few related episodes of the show, like episode 93, Andy Weber on rendering bioweapons obsolete and ending the new nuclear arms race, or episode 118, Jamie Yassif on safeguarding bioscience to prevent catastrophic lab accidents and bioweapons development. 
and episode 104, Dr. Parda Sabeti on the Sentinel System for Detecting and Stopping Pandemics. And in case you didn't know, we always list eight related episodes in the blog post associated with any episode. You could also check out the 80,000 Hours Problem Profile on Preventing Catastrophic Pandemics. You can find a link to that on the blog post or go to 80,000hours.org slash problem profiles slash preventing catastrophic pandemics. And if you want to send us feedback about this episode or the show more broadly, you can email podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsieur. Additional content editing by me and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more. Those are available on our site. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. 